Well, everybody, welcome back on another weekend of the Spirit of Prophecy podcast. This week, we will be showing part two of a conversation we had uh, with Pastor Matt Furse and Scott Clem. And uh, this second part was done because the first one uh, was one where uh, we talked for a long time, but I felt like it left people with a lot more questions. They were kind of left hanging a little bit in some areas. And so this was a follow-up conversation we had maybe a week later, uh, maybe not even a week later, but also some really interesting stuff. So I hope you all will enjoy listening to part two on the conversation of Daniel's 70th week and its fulfillment. Good evening, everyone. Thank you for joining us tonight. Pastor Tommy McMurtry from Liberty Baptist in Rock Falls. Going to be continuing our discussion tonight with Pastor Matt Furse and Pastor Scott Clem about Daniel's 70th week. Has it been fulfilled? Last discussion was very interesting. I really enjoyed it. And uh, those of you on the live chat, make sure you let me know we're live tonight. If uh, everything looks fine, if the audio is good, uh, keep me keep me informed on there. Everything looks like it's working good on my end, but want to make sure. But anyway, we're going to jump right into this conversation because there is a lot that we want to talk about tonight. And I felt like the last discussion, we didn't get to a lot of the things that I wanted to get to and really left a lot of people hanging in some areas. And um, while most of the feedback I got was, I mean, it was, it was very good. Uh, people seem to really enjoy it, learn a lot. I mean, it really had people thinking. There's no doubt about that. People were thinking. It's got people talking, uh, which is what we wanted. Uh, but at the same time, too, uh, because of a lot of things we didn't get to, uh, there's some confusion, uh, some concern about what we think is still to come. And so we're hoping to answer those things tonight. I want to make sure we get to those things tonight. I don't want to leave you hanging, but you're definitely going to still be thinking tonight. And hopefully, if anything, uh, it'll get you going to your Bible and uh, reading it more. And so anyway, I uh, appreciate everyone who uh, emailed questions in. Right, I'm asking y'all behave on the live chat tonight. Uh, we don't let's not get distracted. Pay attention. Your chance for questions uh, was through the emails. And we did that just to uh, avoid the people that just want to get on there and try to argue and be a distraction. Um, the emails were your opportunity. And I do appreciate uh, some of the good emails I got. Uh, good, legitimate questions, and uh, the questions showed me you all were paying attention because uh, there was there's a lot of stuff we didn't get to, and and I appreciate that very much. And so anyway, before uh, what I, the way we're going to do it, we're going to kind of start out. Each of us can take a few minutes just explaining why this imp- subject is important to us. And so I'm going to go first, then I'm going to turn it over to Pastor first. And so my explanation of why this subject is important, I as KJV only us. We make a really big deal about not changing one word of God. And I don't believe anyone uh, in the IFB world is trying to change the King James Bible. Uh, but I, what I do believe is happening, we often move away from Bible terminology. And we start using terms and titles that we got from textbooks and not from the scriptures. And sometimes we even use terms that are in the Bible, terms we found in the Bible but we don't use them the same way the Bible does. And so even if you're using a Bible term, if you're not using it like the Bible, we can't really call that biblical terminology. And so when we move away from biblical terminology, we find ourselves on a theological road where people can start defining things 
however they want. And when this happens, we often end up speaking past each other and having misunderstandings. And so I believe as Bible teachers, we need to be very careful about how we use terms. And whenever we come up with the terminology, we need to understand that just because that word or phrase comes from the Bible, that doesn't necessarily justify how we use it. We must use that term like the Bible does. And so I understand not everyone means the exact same thing when they use certain terminology. We have conflicts and debates on repentance and things like that because a lot of people use that word differently. And it's the same thing when it comes to eschatology. And what I want to do tonight, I want to illustrate why I think it's probably not a good idea to refer to future events, future for us, the future events of Revelation. I don't think we should refer to them as Daniel's 70th week. And I'm somebody who has done that all my life. But I I think we need to rethink this. And so we should, and, and so here's why. Because first, we shouldn't refer to these events as Daniel's 70th week because Daniel's 70th week was a prophecy about the holy city. And it was not about worldwide events like we see in the book of Revelation. So if we're making a timeline for the book things in the book of Revelation, why would we call it Daniel's 70th week? That was about Jerusalem. And even if Daniel's 70th week was a shadow fulfillment of uh, what's to come. And I believe it was. You know, we shouldn't introduce future events with a shadow, but with the actual image that's revealed in Revelation. And so why would we take our title of things to come from a sealed book rather than an unsealed book like Revelation? So and even if you agree with 100% of the things I just said, you know, but still insist on calling it Daniel's 70th week. Just understand that new students that come along are going to get confused when they study this passage and notice how the things, uh, and they're going to notice how the things are that are mentioned specifically about Jerusalem. And then when they start noticing these things were fulfilled, they're going to be very confused because they've been told Daniel's 70th week is future. And so they might end up looking for a Messiah to accomplish some things that the Bible says he's already accomplished. And so, you know, at the end of the day, we should just use, we shouldn't use that term because they are different events. The things that come in Revelation are not the same as the desolations of Jerusalem that already happened. It's not the same. So um, the other reason I believe this discussion is important is because I believe that we have been wrong on and I just said it, and I have I, <clears throat> I have been wrong on who the he of Daniel nine is, and I I think this has been the ultimate blunder that has caused people so much confusion on this subject. When you get because when you get the he right, it helps you understand what has been fulfilled, and the prophecies concerning the desolation of Jerusalem they've been fulfilled. And like Paul said, you realize, you know, now is the day of salvation. And it's the day of salvation for Israel. And not just for Israel, but that covenant was for many. It's for everyone. And let me tell you, the Jews must get in before Jesus returns. And so in all reality, the mistakes being made with Daniel 9, I think a lot of it is because of bad terminology and getting the he wrong. I think scholars have caused confusion with that. And so the thought of Daniel 9 being fulfilled, it strikes fear in the hearts of many because they naturally 
are going to wonder how that changes things in their eschatology. And so that's one of the things we want to talk about tonight. What's that going to change? Because that's what people are concerned about. And I believe if you have a if you have a post-trib, pre-wrath, replacement theology mindset, that it really doesn't change much of anything. I think it just provides additional proof. Now, if you're a pre-tribber and you think God's not done with Israel, um, recognizing Daniel 9 has been fulfilled, it's going to rock your world. And But this shouldn't be a problem for our crowd of admitting that it's fulfilled, that the he is the Messiah, unless you just choke on those three words, the I was wrong. And you know what? We all need to learn how to say that sometimes because it happens to all of us. And so uh, that's kind of my goal tonight. Hopefully uh, that tells you all something. So I'm going to turn over to Pastor First now, and uh, you share with us your thoughts. All right. Thank you. I apologize. I got a terrible cold. I actually feel a lot better today than yesterday. Didn't know if I could do this tonight, but sucking on cough drops and got Kleenex close by. So bear in mind if I get gross on you, I'm sorry. Uh, I just want to start by saying that I wrote the first book, Who is Israel? Because I realized, as you alluded to concerning the Jews and Israel, uh, I really think that's where all this is headed. And, and so I really think that uh, a lot of even Daniel 9, um, some of the objections is, is because of a misunderstanding of Israel. But then I just got this other book written called Which One is Right? And it's the King James Bible versus the Pre-Tribulation Rapture. And that's where this all started, this whole thing that we're doing now. Uh, because one of the chapters talks about Daniel chapter 9 and the abomination of desolation. I just want to remind everybody that that's just one chapter. For instance, there's a lot of questions about Matthew 24. That's a whole different chapter in the book. And uh, and there's there's different things about uh, pre-trib that I think uh, King James only is, are, are hypocrites if they're going to be pre-trib. Um, because as you alluded to, um, uh, what, what you decide is the he, uh, the prince, uh, you have to go back and look at some things in the King James and realize um, that it's not saying what they say it's saying. Uh, day of Christ and day of the Lord's different. Uh, there is no phrase in the King James Bible that says the great tribulation, but we all hear that phrase all the time. Um, and so let's just get technical. Let's get literal, like they accuse us of not being. And let's just look at what does the Bible say? Daniel chapter 9. Tell me where there's a peace treaty. I know where you're going to go with that, but you can't say peace treaty because it's not in Daniel chapter 9. And I can tell you this for sure. You can't tell me that there's a peace treaty that gets broken because that's not in Daniel 9 either. So let's use King James English and let's get back to the King James Bible. And so uh, with that in mind uh, and having the um, uh, the discipling and, and learning that I had from Pastor Wayne Williams, uh, I, I read his thesis and I started listening to what he had to say. But most importantly, just reading and studying the Bible on my own, I started to realize that, that this man has a different position on eschatology because of the Bible. And uh, he, he's, not, he's not doing it for any other reason. There's no other motive involved. And the same with myself. I have nothing to gain other than to, to prove to myself that the Bible is true and to trust in it. And uh, so uh, without, with all that, I, I just have come to the conclusion that I can trust the Word of God. And because I have to uh, pick the word of God over man's words, I'm going to make some people mad. I'm going to go a different direction. Um, but I don't want to. Um, now, Pastor McMurtry, you know this, but the people listening don't know that we just got a phone call from a, a pre-trib pastor uh, just in the last few days, and he teaches in a Bible college. And uh, he called, 
and he said, hey, he said, I've read both your books. He said, I've listened to your interviews. He said, I don't think I agree with you, but I appreciate your position on the King James and I want to sit down and talk with you. I don't want it on, on video. I don't want it recorded, but I want to talk with you. And I said, can you talk with just me or can you talk with Pastor Clem or the other pastors that we know? Uh, and he said, no, I don't care who you bring. So he's going to fly on his own expense. He's going to pay for the whole trip himself. He's going to sit down with us. We're just, he said, I don't want any Greek. I don't want any Hebrew. I just want the Bible. And we're just going to have a Bible study for a day or two and talk about the word of God. You know what? I love that. I love his attitude. I love, I appreciate so much the fact that he either, he said, he, what he's saying is either I know the truth and you're wrong and hopefully I'll teach you something or you know the truth and I'm wrong and hopefully I'm going to invest in myself by coming on this trip. And, and that's being honest. It's having a humble spirit. And it's, <laughs> I appreciate the guy. I mean, in fact, I said, when you're here, why don't you preach for us while you're here? And he said, why would you ask him to do that? He's pre-trip. Well, first of all, I know he's honest enough not to go on that subject uh, in his sermon. Uh, and, and secondly, I can trust him. Um, and so I appreciate that. I said, well, what about the attitude that says, and I quoted somebody that I, that I quote in my book, you know, what about the attitude that says, I won't preach for somebody, I won't have anything to do with somebody that's not pre-trib, I won't be on the same platform as them, blah, blah, blah. He said, that's ignorant. He said, I know that person. He said, I like that person, but that's an ignorant statement. He said, because iron sharpens iron. How do you learn unless you allow yourself to be challenged? And, uh, you know, truth is not afraid of an examination. And uh, what, I, what I'm learning from the whole, honestly, Pastor McMurtry, when I when I started to study eschatology, it wasn't a big deal to me personally. But when I learned how big of a deal it was to other people, it was almost like, why is that so insecure for you? And, and it just made me dig more. Why is that subject of a taboo? Why are we not allowed to go there? And it just made me to dig more and realize, okay, so, so what are we covering here? What, what is it that we're insecure about? And it, it's interesting that I, I believe, that I saw this phrase, I really think it's a good phrase, it says most people don't want the truth. They just want constant reassurance that what they believe is the truth. And so most people hang around their own. They just fellowship with those who rub them the right way and tell them what they want to hear. But I think the honest heart has to take a look and say, wait a minute, this person says he comes from the King James also. So I want to hear him out because if he truly has a respect for the word of God, I want to find out what it is he's finding that I'm not saying. And, and I would challenge you in your eschatology, whether or not it's biblical or whether or not it's based on a man's chart, a man's systematic theology, man's notes at the bottom of the page of your Bible, or whether it's truly coming straight from the word of God. And that's where I'm at on it. Now, through all this, I, I met uh, Scott Clem, who was a member of the church in Gillette, Wyoming. And uh, he and I got to know each other at camp, at a, at a camp that we went to together. And then one day he found out that I wasn't pre-trib and that I didn't have a lot of respect for Schofield. Well, at the time he did. And uh, so he, he kind of was offended at me and I could tell that. So I just dropped the subject. What I didn't know is behind the scenes is that he started digging. He said the reason he was digging is so he could prove me wrong. But instead he was digging and he was finding things he didn't realize before. And so that's his story. But I didn't say last week that Pastor Clem, he wasn't pastor then, but he's pastor now. But he has also been Wyoming state representative. And so he, that's why he's very articulate, more articulate than I am, and uh, very, very good at thinking and processing things. And I, I just appreciate him very much. 
he had an accident as a young man. He's he's in a wheelchair most of the time, uh, but that does not mean that he's handicapped in the head. The guy's a great uh, uh, cerebral uh, thinker and uh, and most importantly humble and uh, spirit led, and I appreciate him a lot. So I'm gonna turn it over to him. Yeah, thanks, Matt. Uh, pastor and a politician, right? Talking about the two things you never talk about: religion and yeah. politics. My two favorite things. All right, so why does why does Daniel matter? Um, in particular, Daniel nine. Uh, well, first of all, it glorifies Christ. Daniel nine twenty four through twenty seven is a prophecy all about the Messiah. In fact, interesting little factoid here: the word Messiah is found nowhere in the Old Testament except for Daniel nine. It's the only place. Now, we find the word Messiah in Christ in the New Testament, but we do not see it anywhere else in the Old Testament except for Daniel 9. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 is a prophecy about the Messiah. So number one, it glorifies Christ. So we better get it right so that we can glorify him. Number two, I think understanding Daniel in, in, in a large part helps to enrich the gospel narrative. Uh, and, and I'll take you through here in just a little bit as far as kind of the background of the book of Daniel. But in Daniel chapter 2, verse 44, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a dream of a statue with four different metals. And it also talks about a little stone that hits the feet of iron mixed with clay. It grows into a big mountain. And Daniel 2.44 says this, and in the days of these kings, talking about that last uh, empire, the Roman Empire, shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed and the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand forever. Then in Daniel chapter seven, Daniel also has a dream. He has a dream of four beasts also representing these four kingdoms. And in Daniel chapter seven, verse 13 and 14 uh, about the kingdom of God, it reads this. I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the son of man, by the way, the son of man, that was Jesus's most favorite term for himself. This is a prophecy about that. One like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days and brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Again, I mentioned, why should we understand this? It enriches the gospel narrative. Because what do we find after 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and New Testament? We find this in Luke chapter 1, verse 31 through 33, the angel Gabriel. You remember the Christmas story, all this stuff. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb and bring forth a son and shalt name, call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. Daniel 9, 24 through 27 points to the Messiah and this coming kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 through 15, and John, oh, and after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. And so understanding the book of Daniel and this prophecy enriches the whole gospel narrative. Not only that, but it helps us to understand who we are in Christ. Uh, there are six stated objectives in, in, in that prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. So they're all in verse 24. And those six objectives were fulfilled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they affect you and I. 
This, it, it talks about things like making an end of sins and reconciliation for iniquity and so on and so forth. And those are things that we experience as believers today. It is a living reality. It's not something far off in a future 70th week somewhere. It's something that we experience today. And finally, why is this important? Well, because the Bible tells us in 2 Thessalonians that the devil is going to bring a strong delusion in the end times. And I think we're living in that. I think uh, the preacher of rapture is part of that strong delusion. But I also think some of these dispensational teachings are also part of that strong delusion. There is a fundamental misunderstanding with, with this text. Now, why does that matter? Well, consider this. Back um, back when Jesus first came to this earth during the first advent, what did the Jews expect Jesus to do? They had some high expectations. And by the way, this was the popular teaching. Everybody thought this. They thought that Jesus was going to sit upon an earthly throne, the throne of his father, David. They thought that he was going to overthrow their Roman oppressors and he was going to build a physical, literal kingdom here on this earth. Now, did Jesus do any of what they thought was going to happen? Well, no, he fulfilled things in quite a different way. And the Gospels bear that out. But the point is this. How could everybody be so wrong back at the first advent? I mean, there was a bunch of smart people, a bunch of Pharisees, a bunch of educated people. And they all thought that Christ was going to overthrow the Roman oppressors and sit on the throne of David. What happened? I think the same thing is true for the second coming. I think there's a lot of things that we think are going to happen when it comes to future prophetic events and I think more than likely, we're probably way off. And they're going to be fulfilled much different than what we all think. Now, that's just my assumption here. Uh, but that's why I think it's important for us to understand what Daniel 9 is saying here. Those four things. All right. Very good stuff there. So, all right. Well, we're going to try to do tonight. And this is going to be difficult because, you know, I've listened to a lot of the preaching you guys have and, um, a lot of these things that we're going to talk about, these questions we're going to try to answer, uh, they have some pretty long explanations, and uh, we got to try to give the shortened version. And so, what I, I want to do, I want to mainly kind of focus, start out focusing on some things where there clearly was a lot of misunderstanding from people that I, I think there just hasn't been a lot of teaching on this, and so a lot of people had the wrong idea. And so, what I want to start out with is talking about. Uh, confirming a covenant because in verse 27 talks about and he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week now what's funny um er, we're saying that's jesus and so then the question i everybody kept asking me when does jesus do a seven-year covenant well it doesn't say it's a seven-year covenant it says he confirms a covenant for uh, one week or seven years so what does that mean? What does that look like? And pre-tribbers, they just think it's a seven-year covenant that the Antichrist breaks in the middle of the covenant, which would, if he stops it halfway through, then he only confirmed a covenant for three and a half years. So that doesn't work. That doesn't make sense. So I want to trust to try to do these things, not spend a ton of time on them because there's a lot we want to get to. And and But um, if you could... Because and people do they want answers like in a live chat they want answers on a Facebook, you know, thread or on a tweet and you, and you can't really do that. But uh, you know, Pastor First, uh, what what would your be the uh, best way to explain that to people? What does that mean to confirm a covenant? Because people obviously don't know what that means. Well, um, 
<laughs> I, I my brain's a little mushy because of the the medicine I've been taking the last 24 hours. Uh, but I just believe that the promise that God gave to Abraham was confirmed in Christ. And uh, in Galatians, it says in, in Galatians chapter three, um, it says to not as the seeds as a many, but as a one to thy seed, which is Christ. And this, I say that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after cannot disannul, and on and on it goes. I, I, I think that, that for one thing, God told them and promised them uh, uh, and confirmed, you know, that he would be the covenant confirmer. There's nowhere in the Bible that Satan or the Antichrist is a covenant confirmer, but instead uh, that he promised them a covenant. And of course, there is the old covenant, but it is it is more fulfilled or more complete uh, in Christ. Uh, the, the, in Christ, they are the children of Abraham. And uh, and so uh, I know one pre-tribber who's written several commentaries, and he says that um, that only the New Testament saints are in Christ, and um, and therefore only the New Testament saints will be raptured, and that the Old Testament saints won't actually be resurrected until after their quote-unquote seven-year tribulation, uh, because they're not technically in Christ. Well, the crazy thing about that is, is that in Galatians chapter 3, it says that the, the covenant that God gave to Abraham was confirmed be before of God in Christ, and so God confirmed that covenant to Abraham in Christ. And Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. We know that uh, Abraham, I believe that Abraham knew and met Christ, uh, of course, and uh, the Bible and Jesus confirms that. So I, I just, I think that the confirmation of the covenant uh, is that Jesus is finally physically coming on the scene to fulfill what was promised. Uh, of course, he was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But he had to physically come in human time and actually confirm it and actually become the sacrifice. And in the midst of that week, he did. He caused the sacrifice and oblations to cease. I'm going to stop talking and let Pastor Clem answer the question. Yeah, Brother Tommy, if you don't mind, can I just back up and give a, a general overview here? Is that all right? Absolutely. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to share a screen here. Um this is my crude drawing, uh, so make fun of it all you want. But I wanted to go over this really quickly here. You can see it on the screen. All right, Daniel chapter 2 talked about this. This is Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And what is this? This is a statue of four metals that correspond to different world empires. You can see them down at the bottom. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, or the Grecian Empire, also called the Macedonian Empire, and then Rome, or what we might call Roman imperialism. Now, these world Gentile powers here lead us all the way until the very end, until the Antichrist, when Christ comes and the kingdom is established here on earth, all right? So this, this whole statue here Ex, uh, it extends from Daniel's day all the way into the future, into our future, right? Then in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has a dream of his own, and we see four different beasts. And these beasts also correspond to the different world empires. In addition to the beasts that Daniel sees, he sees something pretty interesting in this last beast here. And you see, I can circle that. And this last beast it's, it's unlike any others, and, and it says this, And I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, and strong exceedingly. It had great teeth of iron. It devoured and break in pieces. It stamped the residue with its feet of it, and was diverse from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up 
from them a little horn. Now, who is this little horn? We know this little horn is the Antichrist. Notice, where is this fourth beast? It is there in the Roman imperialist era, okay? This is where this fourth beast and this little horn comes from. All right, so let's move on here. Daniel chapter 8. Daniel has a second vision, only he has a vision this time of a ram with two horns and then a he-goat. And this he-goat beats up this ram. But the funny thing about this he-goat, it only has one horn, but then it sprouts four horns. And amongst uh, those four horns sprout another little horn. Now, what is this all about? Daniel chapter 8 tells us specifically who this is referring to. It tells us in Daniel 8 verse 20. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia. What are we talking about here? We're talking about the Medo-Persian Empire. All right. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. All right. So we're talking about the king of Grecia. Who's that? Alexander the Great. What do we know from history? Alexander died at a young age. He didn't leave his kingdom to his prosperity because he didn't have any children. So he left his kingdom to four different generals who split up the empire into four different realms. That's important for us to, uh, to, to come out later on. All right. Oh, by the way, there's a little horn also that comes out of this Grecian empire. Who is this little horn? Well, you'll notice something. The little horn in Greece is different than the little horn in the Roman imperialist empire. In other words, we're not talking about the same horn. We're not talking about the same person. One comes from the third uh, world Gentile power. One comes from the fourth. Uh, the one that comes from Grecia, who is that? I believe that is speaking of Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and that is elaborated on in Daniel, uh, Daniel 11 a little bit more. All right. Then we go to Daniel chapter 9. This is where Daniel has the visit from the angel Gabriel. What is this vision all about? This vision expands from the Medo-Persian Empire all the way up into the Roman Empire to the time of Christ and a little bit beyond to 70 AD. That's the extent of this. And what happens in this vision? Israel is regathered as a nation back to its land after 70 years. The temple is rebuilt. When Daniel is getting this Daniel 9 vision, he's in, he's in captivity in Babylon. The temple has been destroyed. The people are in exile. Jerusalem is a mess. The prophecy states that, that uh, the temple is going to be rebuilt and Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt. Not only that, but the Messiah is going to come and is going to confirm a covenant. But what happens? The Messiah gets cut off. It's like a left turn. This thing goes from being great to now going downhill. The Messiah gets cut off. The Messiah causes sacrifice and oblation to cease, whatever that's supposed to mean. Uh, the Jews reject Messiah's uh, sacrifice, and they offer abominations. And as a result of that, Jerusalem is destroyed. The temple is destroyed, and physical Israel is scattered. And so you have this long, elaborate vision of Jerusalem and the people uh, of Israel in exile and Jerusalem in disarray, and then being, everything being rebuilt back up and then being destroyed and it ending the same way that it began. That's the vision in a nutshell. That's what we're talking about tonight. Then you have Daniel chapter 10 through 12, this third vision. And what is this third vision all about? Well, if you read in particular this third vision, Daniel chapter 11, a lot of it is about the kings of the north and the kings of the south that come from the Grecian Empire. In other words, it's the Ptolemies and it's the Seleucids. And we know that Antiochus uh, Epiphanes came from the Seleucid Empire. He came from Syria, the kings of the north. And that's what we read about 
In Daniel chapter 11, this one who commits this abomination of desolation is the same person that we read about in Daniel chapter 8. So that's a that's kind of a, a down and dirty uh, overview of this. Now, in the meantime, we also have information about the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 2, uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this dream about this little stone who hits the feet of this world, of this last world empire, and this little stone grows into a great big mountain. Um, and of course, we see that. We see Jesus coming on the scene, preaching the kingdom of God, and the gospel has grown like leaven throughout the earth. Um, uh, it has grown like from a, from a little mustard seed into a great big tree. It's filled the earth, and we see that today. At some point in the future, King Jesus is going to return. And when King Jesus returns, what is he going to do? He's going to destroy the Antichrist that is all yet in the future. In the meantime, what happens to the saints that are here on earth? Well, we're persecuted. There's tribulation promised for saints. Jesus said in himself, in this world, ye shall have tribulation. Acts 14, 22, I think is what it is. Uh, we must uh, go through much tribulation to, to get into the kingdom of God. I'm, uh, I'm butchering that verse there. But but that's that's kind of the down and dirty, the, the general timeline of things. So what are we waiting for? We're waiting for King Jesus to return. And in the meantime, what is promised to the people of God? What is promised to the people under the new covenant Christians today? Persecution and tribulation. Folks, we're, we're experiencing tribulation and persecution, persecution in our day and age today. That's not nothing new. Jesus promised that. The, the, the church is in Thessalonica, where, where uh, uh, Paul talks about that as well. John, in the book of Revelation, said, I am your companion in tribulation. Tribulation isn't anything new, and it's not something that's going to be in a far-off future somewhere. There's people dying for Christ today. We're experiencing tribulation. Now, in America, it's pretty good. We're not experiencing tribulation like they are over in China or the Middle East, but that doesn't mean that the world isn't experiencing tribulation. All right. That's it. Jesus comes. He's going to establish his kingdom and it's going to go on through eternity. And this last world empire is going to die. That's the down and dirty of the thing. But the focus of the of this discussion is Daniel chapter nine in the coming of the Messiah and setting up this kingdom. This is what it's all about. Wow. A lot of good stuff. Did you get all that, folks? That that <laughs> that was that was very interesting. A lot of a lot of good information there. So, yeah, I agree. So. Uh, yeah, when I read Daniel 9, I see the Roman Empire. You know, when I read Daniel 11, I see the Greeks. Okay, and um, obviously those things have been fulfilled. And we'll get to the shadows here in a little bit. Let's keep talking about this covenant a little bit more. Because again, uh, most people think this is a covenant that the Antichrist comes up with. And, um, you know, that it's that it's a seven-year covenant. I think we've already established the fact it's not a seven-year covenant. It's confirmed for seven years. So what is that covenant? Who wants to talk about that covenant and, and what it is? Well, I think it's the major covenant. I mean, I think it's I think it's it ties into the promise that God gave to Abraham. Uh, how is Abraham going to be the father of a multitude? How is Abraham going to be the father of many as the sand of the sea or the stars of the of the sky? Uh, it's through this covenant. And, um, you know, uh, he mentioned Messiah. The only time you see it in the Old Testament is in Daniel chapter 9. Uh, that's very interesting. Um, and so, obviously, this is major. Um, and this is about Messiah, obviously. This is about the one, uh, the seed, singular, 
that God promised to Abraham that Paul pointed out. And uh, this is how people can become children of Abraham. You're not a child of Abraham if you were born physically into uh, a, a Jewish or Israeli family. You're a child of Abraham if you're born again in Christ. And uh, otherwise, you're going to die without Christ and you'll never see Abraham, um, just like the rich man in hell today. Um, but the point is, is that this is the covenant that it's talking about. Now, is it saying that that it's only going to last seven years? Of course not. It's covering all the Old Testament. It's covering all of us in the New Testament era. It's, it's covering everybody. But it was given in this one week of time just as a human. I mean, Jesus had to come and, and step into, into time at some point and to fulfill the promise. He was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but he had to literally become it uh, physically. And so that's that's this week of time. And, uh, and he steps in and does that. Uh, and so I think that's why he says in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood of the New Testament or new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. And uh, even as I pointed out last week, the note in the Spanish Bear Bible uh, before the King James was even uh, produced, uh, it points to Matthew 26, 28 from Daniel chapter nine, uh, indicating that that was the covenant and that was the confirmation of it. And, uh, and there's more than just that, though. Uh, there's a lot of verses uh, that go along with that as well. But yeah, he, he is the Messiah. And uh, the Messiah, of course, is confirming the covenant. Even in Isaiah 49, which talks about Jesus being Israel. And it says in verse 8, In an acceptable time have I heard thee, and the day of salvation have I helped thee, and I will preserve thee and give thee for a covenant of the people to establish the earth and to cause to inherit the desolate heritage. So, here we see again that Jesus has promised to be the covenant. So it's amazing to me. How in the world did, did mankind, did, did, did modern theologians decide that this covenant confirmer was the Antichrist instead of Jesus? I mean, this is the only passage that mentions Messiah. And somehow the last two verses got switched and, and turned over to the, this quote-unquote Antichrist. Um, uh, we didn't really mention it strongly last week, but... Um, the original King James Version, the 1611, it, it has capital P for verse 26 in Daniel chapter 9. In other words, both princes are capitalized. Now, if you're King James only, you've got a problem with that if you're also uh, against what we're talking about tonight. If you're pre-trib, you've got a big problem with it. Um, because that just clearly indicates that the second prince in verse 26 is the Messiah of the prince in verse 25. And, uh, and then I've heard people say, well, it must be a typo or a, or a printer's error. Uh, it's, in, it's in the 1612 also. It wasn't just in the 1611. Uh, and so I don't know who changed it to a lower P in our 1769 edition. It doesn't change anything for me because the grammar is still correct and it still works. But if you're pre-trib, you got a problem with that. Mm -hmm. So do you think that the people of the prince, you think that prince is Jesus? Yeah. Okay. Yep. I think the I think the second the the verse twenty six when it says the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city, I think that that's Jesus the prince, and I think the people were as we talked about last week Israel thou hast destroyed thyself that they themselves uh, brought the destruction upon themselves and that matches with Matthew twenty three at the end when it says, you know I wanted to gather you as a mother hen and you would not your house is left unto you desolate and from there it goes right into Matthew twenty four. Um, and we, we know within 70 or 40 years, it was left desolate. Um, and so I think there's just clear evidence there. Uh, people say, well, how can, how can it say that? Because, because it was the Jewish people 
uh, Daniel's people who eventually destroyed themselves uh, because they didn't receive the Messiah like they should have. Um, getting back to Daniel chapter 9, I think it's interesting that God gives all this negative information to Daniel about what's coming. You know, Daniel just went through one destruction. He just went through the Nebuchadnezzar um, Babylonian takeover of his city, his beloved city. And now he's getting this information that there's going to be a future desolation. And I'm sure all of this is, is probably hard for him to take. But he's encouraged in Daniel chapter 9 by saying, look, there's coming the Messiah. And he will confirm the covenant with many for one week. That's positive. God does that. When he gives negative news and bad news, he also gives the, the silver lining in the cloud to, to leave us with hope. I mean, you read that in Revelation where there's a lot of bad things, but then you read how that, uh, yeah, there, there's the mark of the beast, but there's also God's people that are sealed in their forehead as well. And so I think that when you read Daniel 9 with the understanding that it's all about Jesus, that's positive. But when you take that away and make it antichrist at the end, that just deflates any hope. And I, I can't imagine uh, uh, Daniel thinking anything positive out of it if there's really nothing to hope for or to aim for if, uh, if it just becomes a negative thing. So um, I, I think that's another indication uh, and, and, and example, I would say, concerning Daniel chapter 9 and why I, I have for a long time, for a very long time, uh, have always considered the covenant confirmer to be uh, Christ and not Antichrist. And it's not just me, and it's not just Pastor Clem, and it's not just a few of us nut jobs, you know, walking around today. I, I can I can tell you, if you go look at Matthew Henry, and you might criticize, you might say, well, some of these guys are Calvinists. That's not the point. You go look at all the historical commentators. You go look at all the old commentaries, and I promise you, you're going to find that it lines up with what we're saying. I'm just going to read you a list of these. Even John R. Rice referred to Jesus as the covenant confirmer one time in one of his books. Haley's Bible Handbook, uh, James Usher's Annals of World History, the Geneva Bible Notes, uh, Tory's Treasury of Scriptural Knowledge, uh, the Spanish Bear Bible, as I mentioned earlier, B.H. Carroll, brother to J.M. Carroll of Trail of Blood, uh, Philip Morrow, John Wesley, Matthew Poole, uh, the Pulpit Commentary, the Preacher's Homiletic Commentary, Jameson Fawcett Brown, uh, Family Bible Notes, even Herbert Lockyer, uh, there, all these people have an indication in Daniel 9, verses 24 and 27, that they considered Christ to be the one that was the anointed, the most holy, and they considered Christ to be the covenant confirmer, or one of the above, or all of the above. And you go dig for yourself, and you'll find, I found, that the older commentaries do not line up with what we have been led to, the, to believe for the last 100 years. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, it's kind of, you know, when it comes to the people of the prince, you know, I, I lean towards it being, you know, Titus and his people. Either way, it's the he of Daniel 927 is still the same because earlier in the chapter, it shows that it is the Lord that's bringing this on them. And even if he does it through, you know, Titus and his people, you know, it's yeah. still it's still him doing it. And so right. either way you look yeah. at it, the he is yeah. still the Messiah. What, right. and, and that's where a lot of people that have had questions, they're confused on that. And it's like, mm. okay, that's fine. I think, I think we can, I think we can disagree on who the people of the prince is, but either, yeah. either way you spin it, uh, yeah, the he of 27 is outcome, still Jesus. The outcome is still the same. The conclusion right. is still the same. I have no problem with that either. I just personally believe that the people of the prince is the Maccabees, the zealots who got into the temple and uh, used it as a fortress. 
Okay. And I, and I would go one, one, well, not one step further. I, I would say this, let's let, let the Bible define itself. We have a warning from Moses, right? It's repeated in Acts chapter three, verse 22, for Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you like of your, uh, of your brethren, like unto me, him shall ye hear in all things whatsoever he shall say to you. Who is he prophesying of? Jesus. And it shall come to pass that every soul which will not hear that prophet shall be destroyed from among the people. Hosea 13, 9, Israel, thou hast destroyed thyself. Uh, who destroyed themselves? It was Israel. Why? How? Their rejection of the Messiah. That's true. That's true. Just as true today. If you reject Jesus Christ as Savior, you're destroying yourself. There is no hope for you because there is no hope outside of Christ. And, and, the, and Israel uh, suffered that. Um, I think that's, that's clear. So the people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Yes, Rome was a tool in the hands of God, just like Babylon and Assyria were tools in the hand of God when they took out the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Uh, but let's not kid ourselves. Who does God hold responsible for their destruction? It was the Jews themselves. Likewise, for each and every one of us. And Pastor McMurtry, um, you're not alone. I mean, the, the, the marginal note in the 1611 does say, or abominable armies. And so, you know, there, there was that thought. However, your conclusion in verse 27 is still right. And the point is this. I got no problem if someone wants to say the people is the Roman army and the yep. prince is Titus. I don't have a big problem with that as long as you still understand 27 is the covenant confirmer is still Christ. What I really have a problem is, is with when you leapfrog about 2000 years and make up some antichrist out of that, which is totally out of context and, and totally in the imagination world. Exactly. And, and I, I, I would concur with that. If, if someone comes to a different conclu uh, conclusion and, and that's what, you know, what I've discovered in my studies, there's, there's a wide diversity on that, uh, you know, the people, the prince who shall come. And um, with, with the majority from what I've seen thinking that it was Titus, but they all come to the conclusion again that that verse 27, I mean, you got to keep things in context. You can't insert a, a future third unnamed character called the Antichrist into that passage and he's not found anywhere. And so that's where that's where some of the problem lies. Um, you know, talking about, again, to confirm a covenant. That's what the, the Bible says that right back in Daniel 9. He shall confirm a covenant. Well, what does confirm mean? Well, it means to make strong or to, to give it strength. It's the enactment or the enforcement of the thing. And the idea here is to make strong or enact a covenant that was previously spoken of. It's the ratification or the enforcement of a covenant. Of course, we see this with Israel and Mount Sinai. You recall in, in Exodus chapter 19, God brings them to Mount Sinai. He says, I want to make a covenant with you. The people said, all that you have spoken, we will do. And the ratification happens afterward. God gives the Ten Commandments and the laws. And then in chapter 24, you have the ratification with the slain of the animals, the blood that was sprinkled. They ratified the covenant. So what's the covenant being confirmed in Daniel chapter 9? Well, let's, again, let the Bible define itself. Do we have any verses in the Bible that tell us the Antichrist will make a covenant? None. Zero. None in the Old Testament, none in the New. Jesus, when he had the opportunity, talking about the Olivet Discourse and things to come, did he mention the, the Antichrist making a covenant? No. 
Paul, the apostle in Thessalonians, when he was talking about things to come and the Antichrist, the man of sin specifically, did he ever talk about the, the man of sin making a covenant? No, he didn't. How about John the Revelator? Revelation, all about our future end times events. Did he ever talk about the Antichrist making a covenant? No, he did not. Not a single one. But we do have a lot of verses telling us that Jesus himself is a covenant confirmer and that he confirmed the Abrahamic and the new covenants. Galatians 3, 15 through 17. The, I mean, think about this. Think of the language. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men, though it be but a man's covenant, talking about the Abrahamic covenant. Yet if it be confirmed, no man disannuleth or addeth thereto. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say, that the covenant that was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. Romans 15, 8. Now I say that Jesus Christ was the minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made unto the fathers. What kind of promises? Well, how about Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34? Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. What did Jesus do when he was here on the earth? Matthew 26, 28. For this is the blood of the New Testament, the new covenant which is shed for many for the remission of sins. What does that sound like? Sounds like the same kind of ratification process that we saw with the <coughs> there at Mount Sinai. Hebrews 9, 15, for this cause, he, Jesus, is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions which were under the First Testament, uh, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance, for where a testament or a covenant is, there must also of necessity be the death of a testator, for a testament is of force after men are dead, otherwise it is no of no more strength at all while the testator liveth. Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy brings us up to the Messiah. Did the Messiah confirm the promises made by made to the fathers? Yes. Did Messiah confirm the Abrahamic covenant? Yes. Did the Messiah confirm the covenant, uh, the new covenant? Yes. Did the new covenant strengthen the Abrahamic covenant? whereby all nations of the earth are blessed by granting the forgiveness of sins. Yes. Are there other verses that speak about Christ confirming such a covenant? Yes. Isaiah 42, 6, Isaiah 49, 8, Malachi 3, 1. You see this over and over and over again. Really a conclusion is this. When we let the Bible actually just speak for itself, we find that there's not a single verse that tells us of a future Antichrist that will make a covenant with anyone. But we have lots of verses that tell us that God was going to make a new covenant with Israel. And the Bible tells us that this covenant was, in fact, confirmed by Christ, that he was the covenant confirmer. What more? Jesus confirmed this covenant during the exact period in which Daniel's prophecy describes. Could that just be coincidence? No, it is reasonable to conclude that confirming a covenant is a significant event in Daniel's prophecy. Being that it's a big deal, wouldn't it be fitting for God to tell us elsewhere in Scripture what this covenant is going to be like and who it's for? Isn't that what we have in regard to the new covenant? If it's about a future Antichrist and it's a big deal, then why doesn't Scripture speak about it elsewhere? 
Nothing in the Gospels speak about the Antichrist making a covenant. Jesus never uttered the words. Paul never described it. John the Revelator didn't describe it. Nothing, never once does the Antichrist, is he described as making a covenant, let alone breaking one. The covenant confirmer is Christ, and the covenant is what he came to confirm. And and Brother McMurtry, when he said that the confirm, the Hebrew word is strengthen, to make strong. Well, think about it. What's stronger, animal sacrifices or Christ's sacrifice on the cross? I mean, that strengthens it right there. I mean, if you're trusting in animal sacrifices as an Old Testament saint, you've got to go back and do it every year. You've got to go back and slaughter another animal. But Jesus strengthened it by confirming it. And we don't have animal sacrifices today. And Hebrews backs that up. Yeah, I, 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 love, I, I feel like I need to drop a microphone for you guys right now or something. Because, I mean, folks... <laughs> If these guys aren't right, what does it mean for an antichrist to confirm a covenant? Nobody talks about that. It it's there's no scripture for it anywhere else. People don't even understand what that means. And I remember when I was listening uh, to one of your sermons where you're talking about that, I'm just like, how do you, how do you miss this? It's really really clear. And man, I, yeah, I don't think we even need to say any more about that. I think. Uh, that ends that there. The, okay. I mean, it, it, it only gets richer and deeper because it says he shall confirm a covenant with many, right? Then you think about, well, who who are the many? Hmm. Isaiah 53, 11, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Yeah. Matthew 26, 28 again, for this is the blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Luke 1 16, and many of the children of Israel shall turn to the Lord their God. Uh, Luke 2 23, this child is set for the rising and fall of many in Israel. And it goes on and on and on and on. Romans, Paul talks about it, uh, but not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God that the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. It's it's all throughout the Gospels. Amen. What I have found is when you start to understand this, it unlocks verses that used to not tie together in your brain. And now they all tie together. Right. And it like like takes the blinders off. It does. So many ways. Yes. It's the same thing as when I came around on post-trib and replacement, there was so much more Bible that made sense. And then, and now this too, it's just like, I'm real anxious to kind of get it different books because- all of a sudden things are making a lot more sense now. And it's just like dispensationalism. I think it's like walls that you have to kind of break through one at a time. Those walls really stop people in their uh, knowledge of the scripture. And uh, once you get rid of those, it's amazing just how things clear up. But all right, what um, I want to go on to the next question, because we're getting close to the hour mark and I was wanting to get, uh, through this one segment before we got there. So I'm going to kind of ask both these questions at the same time. So we briefly touched on this last time. There was a lot of confusion, a lot of questions on this. So, uh, you know, how confident are you, or give an explanation of how 70 AD can be the fulfillment of Daniel's 70th week without a gap. There was a lot of questions still on that. And then the other thing too you know, how confident are you that the timelines 
that history gives us are accurate, you know, because um, so for, you know, so for example, to me, you know, either way you look at it, some people think, well, the final seven years was in 70 AD dur during that Jewish Roman war. Okay. Uh, you know, I guess that could make some sense. The only thing is I don't see the covenant being confirmed for seven years. If, if you put it way out there, it makes sense to me that there would kind of be a gap, you know, from the time of Christ of 40 years to 70 AD is like, a, you know, and I'm not a big numerology guy, but 40 does seem to be the number of probation to give Israel a chance to get in on that new covenant. Um, you know, people are asking, did uh, Jesus's, uh, did the announcement of the Messiah by John the Baptist, did that mark the beginning of the 70th week or did his crucifixion? So there's a lot of different questions about exactly where the timelines go. And to me, we're kind of at the mercy of the historians. I think we all tend to pick whatever suits our theology the best. I mean, honestly, when it comes down to it, I don't think it's a huge deal where those things fall, as long as you understand it was all fulfilled. But I don't have real strong opinions uh, on it yet. I have opinions, not strong opinions. But what are your uh, guys' thoughts on that uh, of, of no gap theory? Could there be a gap? Um how trustworthy are these timelines? What are your thoughts? There's a lot of questions on those. Who goes? Who wants to go? Yeah, I, I guess I can I can tee this off. Here. Um, all right, to give an explanation of how the seventy week or seventy AD can be the fulfillment of Daniel's seventieth week without a gap. All right, um, verse twenty six and twenty seven of Daniel chapter nine should be taken together, um, and and we need to remember there's there was no chapter or verse divisions. All right, in the original scriptures there. Those were added later for our benefit. Verse 26 tells us that two things are going to happen after 69 weeks. All right, the Messiah is going to be cut off and the city and the temple would be destroyed. Now, taken very literally, the verses do not tell us exactly when these two events will occur or even that these events will take place in the 70 weeks determined. It only tells us that they will occur sometime after 69 weeks. All right, so what does history tell us? Well, history reveals that Jesus was crucified three and a half years after the 69th week, which would be in the middle of a 70th week, and that Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed about a generation after the 69 weeks in 70 AD. Now, that's those two things are just a matter of fact. So both of these things were fulfilled according to Scripture, occurring after 69 weeks regardless of whether someone holds a historicist view or a futurist position. Now, some might want to make this apply to a, a future third temple, um, but that would be reading our own thoughts into the text. And I understand why some would want to do this, arguing the progressive revelation of passages like 2 Thessalonians 2.4, but the text of Daniel never once tells us that a third temple will be constructed or consequently destroyed. That's pure assumption. Good exegesis forces us to ask, how would have Daniel uh, and his people understood this prophecy in its normal historical sense? When Daniel was given this prophecy, the first temple lay in ruins. Israel was exiled in Babylon. There weren't even plans to rebuild a second temple yet. To make the words of this prophecy applies to a supposed third uh, future temple is the very definition of eisegesis. 
uh, doing violence to the text while ignoring the context and manipulating its normal grammatical and historical sense. And while it must be argued that the six objectives in Daniel 9.24 must take place in the 70 weeks determined, the prophecy never actually states that Jerusalem and the temple must be destroyed in the 70 weeks. That's, uh, that's a logical assumption, but when it comes to our assumptions versus the, what the text actually says, let God be true and every man a liar. Maybe some want to label me as taking me being too literal. Okay, that's fine, I guess. Um, I don't want to be guilty of adding anything to the word of God just because it doesn't line up with dispensational theology. Yeah. Verse 27 tells us, for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate even until the consummation. The idea is that before Jerusalem or the temple is destroyed, i.e. the consummation, it would be made desolate. Now, that's a little detail that's worth emphasizing. It would be desolate until the consummation. Scripture validates this very thing with Christ. Because of Jerusalem's rejection of Messiah, he himself pronounced that it would be desolate. Matthew 23, verse 37 and 38. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often what I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicken under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, when did this pronouncement take place in relation to the actual consummation when Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed? Forty years or a generation prior. So the city, the temple was spiritually desolate for 40 years before it was actually destroyed, just like Christ said, matching up perfectly with Daniel 9, 26 through 27. I don't have an issue with the timelines and how these things present themselves. And by the way, just one quick uh, thing on the historical timelines, uh, people get history wrong. And when you go that far back into history, boy, things get a little bit sketchy. We have a perfect Bible that gives us a perfect timeline of events. If you're going to trust anything, trust what the Bible says. Amen. That's, that's good. Do you have anything to add to that, Pastor First? Yeah, uh, yeah, I agree. And, and I just read Ezra the other day about Cyrus. I believe that Cyrus is the one, and the Bible says it. And I believe that that, that uh, most likely was 457 B.C. Um, there was a guy named Martin Anstey who used just the Bible to come up with his dates. Imagine that concept. And, um, and, and not and ignored the secular history, history and just let the Bible determine itself. And he came up with Cyrus being the one who declared it on 457 BC. Well, that matches up perfectly with the baptism of Jesus by John. And I want to just go to Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10 and verse uh, number 37. We mentioned it last week. But I want to read it. Acts chapter 10, verse 37. <clears throat> that word I say, you know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. So we have these two verses tied together. And as he said, verses weren't verses back when this was originally written. After the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. That's exactly what Daniel 9 says. It says that they're going to anoint the most holy. <clears throat> and then, as we've already talked about, Jesus Christ being the anointed one, he's the Messiah. That's what the word means, is Messiah. 
And then in the midst of the week, he's going to cause the sacrifices and oblations to cease, which confirms, makes strong the covenant. It's all right there. And so biblically, it lines up perfectly. And the baptism of Christ is the completion of that. The beginning of the 70th week was the baptism of Christ. And we all agree that it was approximately three and a half years of Jesus's ministry. I want to remind you, Daniel 9 does not say three and a half years. It just says in the midst of the week. So we don't have to have actual three and a half years. We just have to understand in the midst of the week. And we know that it was about three and a half years of his ministry. And what happened? He died on the cross and he cried, it is finished. The veil of the temple ripped in two. You talk about confirming the covenant. You talk about strengthening the covenant. You talk about getting rid of the animal sacrifices and the animal oblations. The animal sacrifices and oblations, they cease. That's it. The confirmation of the covenant is there. Temple, is now not necessary. Yeah, and, and the the temple does not have to be, or not the temple. The um the covenant doesn't have to be limited to a seven years. I mean that people people make that that objection and they say, well, it says right there, he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Well, you remember what Acts two thirty eight says, right? Then Peter said unto them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. Does that mean that baptism is the thing that leads to remission of sins? No. What's the point of baptism? Does it save anybody? No. In baptism, we are identifying ourselves with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, whereby through him we have the remission of sin. In other words, to be baptized is to identify yourself with Jesus Christ. In like manner, when the Bible says in Daniel, he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, he is identifying the covenant being confirmed in that one final week. That's what the scripture is telling us. Amen. All right. So, yeah, good stuff there. Well, all right. Well, this is really important that we get to this part, too. Because, yeah, and the thing, too, about the anointing. I mean, so, uh, like in dispensationalism, it has Christ getting anointing, anointed in the millennium. And it's like... No, the Bible's pretty clear. He got anointed at the baptism. I mean, right. you know, it's yeah. like in the Old Testament, they would pour oil over on him, which I think was a picture of the Holy Spirit. Jesus sure. had the actual Holy Spirit come upon him, and he received the go. Spirit without measure. The Bible yeah. calls it an anointing. So to, to yeah. act like Jesus' anointing is something we're waiting for, I think it's kind of yeah. crazy. Yeah, besides having the Bible on our side on this, I mean, yeah. let's just let's just be real. Yeah. You're using your imagination. When you say that, you're saying, well, I didn't get to see it, and it didn't seem to be very grand. It didn't seem to be a very great ceremony. And so I think it's bigger. It's Look, there might be a, a great big coronation day, and I'm sure there will be, and I'm sure there'll be a grand day, but, but the Bible says he's already anointed. Right. So, all right. Well, hey, now we, we need – this is the part I want to make sure we get to because we, we didn't get to this last time. We ran out of time, and I know there's probably a lot of people right now. You're listening to this, and you're you're about to have heart failure because we're convincing you that these things have all been fulfilled, and uh, you're you're wondering about the future because, uh, yeah, I mean, everybody's always used Daniel to talk about the future. So, I personally believe in dual fulfillments, and when I say dual fulfillments, I don't necessarily think these things are going to happen twice. But I do believe there's a lot of prophecies where we see things take place and they're a shadow of things to come again in the future. So um, I, I talked to a, a well-known uh, preacher one or not um, prophecy guy one time. He told me he does not believe in dual fulfillments. And I, 
that really kind of shocked me. But what's your guys' position on dual fulfillments? Pastor Clem, what do you think about that concept of dual fulfillments? Do you believe in that? Yeah, I mean, obviously we see dual fulfillments in the scripture. I mean, if you if you take a look at, for instance, uh, Acts chapter 15, um, there's that whole Jerusalem council there. And I, I forget who it was. Maybe it was James or, or somebody quotes from was it Amos, I think is what it is. And that passage in Amos is, is not referring at all to what, uh, what, what the, the man is making it apply to, but he's under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost. And so we see a dual fulfillment there. We see the same thing with, with the book of Hosea and the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9. And so, yes, dual fulfillment certainly are a thing. There's one, there's one danger, though, that I would just caution people when it comes to dual fulfillments. If what criteria do we use in order to determine a dual fulfillment? In other words, we should have some kind of objective criteria that says this is when it's appropriate to use it and this this isn't. Because if we don't do that, then we can make any verse of scripture in the Bible a dual fulfillment and say this is going to happen in the future. Well, says says who? Well, it's a dual fulfillment. Well, hold on a second. That that can be abused. So we have to be very careful of that. Right. Um, I don't know if I would say that there's any dual fulfillments. Now, there, there could be, but when it comes to Daniel 9, 24 through 27, um, I, I, don't, I don't lean toward the direction of seeing dual fulfillments. Is there a future Antichrist? Yes. He's not spoken of in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, though. Where is the Antichrist found in the book of Daniel? Chapter 7, out of that fourth beast, the little horn. It's not the same as the one in Daniel chapter 8. We already went through that because that comes from the Grecian Empire. That's Antiochus. But that little horn of the fourth beast in Daniel chapter 7 is yet future. Revelation chapter 13 almost mirrors the language from Daniel chapter 7, talking about that little horn. So yes, there's a future man of sin. There's going to be some things that happen in the future. But as far as dual fulfillments are, are, are concerned, I guess my, my rule of thumb is this. Um, you know, if there's a dual fulfillment, it better show me that in the Bible. And there was, there was good men of God who were filled with the Holy Spirit who told us about dual fulfillments. And if some, you know, some crackpot comes out there and says, well, this is a dual fulfillment. Hold on a second. Who are you? And show me that in the scripture. Um, so we got to be careful about those things. Right. Yeah. Hey, man, I think, yeah, go I ahead, think dual, the dual fulfillment thing is a slippery slope where you're just kind of compromising with the, the pre-trib chart and diagram. And you got to be careful. I know a lot of people, they're so, and I hate to use the word brainwash because I don't want to sound condescending, but um, they're so used to thinking that an abomination of desolation has got to be in Revelation, that they just can't handle the idea that it's already passed. Um, we, we covered the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke all mentioned it, but John never did. And, and it's because, in my opinion, uh, it was already passed. John wrote after 70 AD. And so his gospel and revelation didn't need to talk about it. It was passed. Um, now, I my pastor, Wayne Williams, he kind of leaned toward the idea that the last half of the 70th week might be the three and a half years in Revelation. And, and I don't think there's seven years in Revelation, but I do think you can find three and a half years in Revelation. And so there's a lot of weight to that, uh, that that could be. And maybe there was a pause after the crucifixion resurrection. Uh, for the last half of the week. Um, I'm willing to be lenient or, uh, and to compromise or to agree to disagree on some of those things. But for me, the big deal is 
you got to understand the covenant confirmer in Daniel 9, 27 has to be Messiah the Prince. That I think we've already covered. And these other things that you want to say is dual fulfillment. That's your opinion. That's your choice if you want to say that. But like Pastor Clem said, unless the Bible says that, be careful. And, and, and you can't, as much as you want to be dogmatic, you can't be. Um, I, I don't think that Daniel 9 is connected to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 or Revelation 13. I don't think it is. Um, and and uh, if you can prove to me from Scripture, I might change my mind on that. Uh, but I don't think so. I think what we've already talked about in the last hour and, and last week uh, is why I don't think it. Well, would you think that it's connected to Daniel? Second Thessalonians 2 is connected to Daniel 11 because the language is very, I mean, it sounds like the same thing. And yeah, that's a question. That's a question that I knew was coming. Um, we have a pastor friend out here in the Black Hills that hasn't come on with us yet, but he's done a great series on the book of Daniel for his church. And uh, hopefully we'll hear uh, from him soon live. But um, he went through Daniel and, and in Daniel chapter 11, everyone thinks that's around verse 31, 32 up there. They, they think that that's, that King is, is this future Antichrist. And then they, you know, and it's because they're led to believe that. Um, well, I believe it's King Herod. I think Herod the Great fulfills the last part of Daniel chapter 11 uh, down to the very T. And uh, I think his slaughter of the innocent children uh, is, is there in Daniel chapter 11. And uh, I, I think that desire of women, we, everyone says, well, he's, you know, um, that's talking about uh, uh, homosexual. You know, he's, a, he's probably a homo. Uh, no, um, let me read it so I get it right here. But Daniel 9, 11 and verse, uh, well, where am I? Daniel 9, 11. Where's that verse? Desire of women. 37. 37. Yeah. Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers. King Herod the Great was technically a descendant of Abraham and nor the desire of women. So they say uh, that that's that means he's probably a homo. Well, actually, the desire of women in the Old Testament was to be the mother of the Messiah. Bingo. And, and so he didn't regard the mother of the Messiah. He didn't desire Christ. And uh, nor any God. And so what happened, what you see is that Herod the Great, he questioned the wise men because he wanted to destroy the desire of women. He wanted to destroy God and, uh, and, and because he was threatening his kingdom. So I think that Daniel 11, and I know probably there's some people listening to us right now that just blew a gasket, but <laughs> just take a time to read Daniel 11. See, this is a big subject. I understand it. And that's why I said Daniel 9 is a positive. Daniel 9 was a hope. Because God is giving all this to Daniel, but in the middle of it, in chapter 9, he says, but listen, Daniel, it all works good. There is a covenant confirmer that's coming. And so because of the misconception and getting off on the wrong trail, people, people are having a hard time hearing this and understanding it. It's because they just see Antichrist in places where he's not. And part of that, too, is that, you know, when you read chapters like Daniel 11, and we don't know our history, you know, that, that well, um, there, there's a lot here that we're, we just haven't been taught. And so we think to ourselves, well, this couldn't have happened because I don't see how it could have ever been fulfilled in the past. But if you just start doing a little bit of digging, um, you will find that Daniel chapter 11, all of it has been fulfilled in the past. And, and I had shared that screen before. In fact, I'll just throw it back up there uh, again, just so you can see Daniel 12, 
10 through 12 is Daniel's uh, third vision. And it's the, it's the, uh, the merger of Israel's future and these Gentile kingdoms. And we have, we have this back and forth, these seesaw struggles between the kings of the north and the kings of the south, the Seleucids or Syria and the Ptolemies or Egypt. And so we see, we see it all the way through Antiochus Epiphanes um, in, in Daniel 11, uh, 21 through 35. All of that has been fulfilled. It mirrors what we find in Daniel chapter 8. The, the crazy thing is, is once we get to Daniel eleven thirty five, 35, then we want to say, well, wait a second. We want to push everything out into the future. Verse 36 and following has to be way, way out there in the future. But why would God do that? I mean, that leads us into the time of the Roman Empire. And what do we find? We find King Herod. We find the struggle between Cleopatra. She was the last of the Ptolemies. Um, and um, uh, what was the, the guy? Mark Anthony. Mark Anthony. And we, we see those struggles. We see how Caesar Augustus, that's, uh, that I believe is also spoken of at the, at the tail end. Of, uh, of Daniel 11 as well. So once we know our history, the thing is, is you can see prophetic fulfillments in these things. And it's just amazing how history and the Bible merge together. Is that coincidence? No. In fact, some have even said, because Daniel is so accurate when it comes to world history, that Daniel couldn't have been written when it was, that it had to have been written at a later date, because it's just so accurate. No, it's just our God is a God of the future. Our God is a God of prophecy. He knows the end from the beginning, and he recorded it all for us right there in God's word. We just have to have eyes to see it and dig a little bit. So you just got to understand, Daniel was, at the time he was getting this, this was future for him. But it's not future now. The 70th week come to a conclusion. And, and of course, the positive is, is that Christ provides for them a confirmation of the covenant that they don't even need to worry about the temple anymore and the animal sacrifices because he will make it strong and make it everlasting. Okay. Wow. So my mind's blown a little bit. So uh, I'm sure we did. I'm yeah. sure we just threw a wrinkle in <laughs> I haven't heard I haven't heard that interpretation of the desire towards women. Yeah. I that's yeah. that's new. So just so I just so I understand so, Pastor Clem, you mentioned you felt like Daniel 11, it's about Antiochus Epiphanes, but Pastor First, you think it's about Herod? Well, no, 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 both. No, both. Both? both? Okay. Both. Yeah. So, so, yeah, verse verse 21 through 35 record Antiochus Epiphanes. Verse verse 5 through through 20 talks about these seesaw struggles between the, the kings of the north and the kings of the south, the Seleucids and the Ptolemies. Verse 21, Antiochus was a king of the north. He was a Seleucid. Um, and then you get down to ver uh, verse 36. And think about this. Verse 36 says, and a king shall do according to his will. Now, think about this. Up until that time, up until really the Babylonian captivity, Israel has not had a king. Who is the one king that showed up in Israel's timeline after the Babylonian captivity? It was Herod. Um, and so I, I agree with um, with Pastor First. I believe that uh, verse 36 down through the end of the chapter is talking about Herod the Great and also talking about uh, Caesar Augustus 
who was of the Roman Empire, and his final takedown of the last of the Grecian empires, the Ptolemies, uh, being being Cleopatra. I believe that those things are found at the tail end of that. Okay. All right. So yeah, I yeah that some of a lot of that's new to me. I'll have to look you into know, some of that. It's interesting. Yeah, that, that that opens up a whole nother. Yeah, a whole nother. Well, you know, just to put in a, I guess, a shameless plug, I'm going over some of these things in in our Wednesday night Bible studies. In fact, I'll be going through these seesaw struggles in Daniel chapter 11, and we'll be working our way through the tail end of that. So, um, and I will post, I will be in the near future posting on our church sermon audio page, uh, the, the sermon series that this other brother in the Black Hills preached to his church. Okay. And anyone who looks him up will get to know who he is. Uh, he just wasn't able to come online right now, and I don't have permission to mention his name, so I'll not do it right now. Okay. Yeah, I have your guys' channels in the description of this video. So, folks, check those out and go watch their stuff. There's a lot of good stuff. So, well, let me back, you know, stay on the dual fulfillments. Let me, let me put it to you this way, because when I talk about dual fulfillments, and I think when a lot of people talk about dual fulfillments or shadows or whatever, yeah, you know, nobody's saying these things are necessarily going to repeat, but we can go back and we can look at these. For example, when I go back and I look at the abomination of desolation, whether it's in, in chapter nine, chapter 11, any chapter, I, I look at that. And to me, it's a shadow. It's a picture of what I see in Revelation 13, because I think what we see in Revelation 13, where the Antichrist is declaring himself to be God, I think that's a reference to what the Apostle Paul was referring to in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And then when I go back to Daniel 11, it sounds so similar that while I believe that Daniel 11 was a specific event that already happened, I don't think it's wrong to look at that and say, you know, these are pictures. So if somebody you know, wants to preach from those things to talk about what's to come in Revelation 13. Because again, I don't think we should, and this is one of the biggest things. This is why I'm saying, you know, Daniel's a shadow, Revelation, it's the full 3D image. And so if I see an event in Revelation and then I see something similar back in Daniel, then I will use that. If I see something in Daniel and I can't find it in Revelation, then I'm not going to use it. So does that make sense? Do you think that's oh, credible? Yeah. Well, here's the thing. Um, my wife likes Sudoku. Mm-hmm. You know that number thing? Mm-hmm. Where you try I to do too. Well, I, I I only like it if I can use whiteout. Um, you know, <laughs> and because, you know, I always, I look at this box and I'm like, yeah, that number probably goes there. And I'm convincing myself it does. And then I get so frustrated because it really isn't supposed to go there. And that's what you got to understand about prophecy. You, you got to understand where the fixed references are. Right. Where the fixed, and you can't you can't change that, and you can't use whiteout. You got to just decide. Okay, I got to be humble enough to admit I'm wrong. Now, the guys that have charts and books and videos and recordings, they're the ones that don't want to admit this. Um, but those of us who who can, and, and I've said before, I'll burn all my books and stop selling books that are full of garbage if if I know I'm wrong. But the point is, is that you got to be honest enough to say, okay, where are the fixed point of references? Where can I, I, I know the King James Bible is accurate. So I'm going to start there. What, and, and I'm not going to allow someone to change it. For instance, Daniel 9, 24, a lot of these guys in the pre-trib are saying it's the most holy place. They're adding a word. 
they don't they don't want to admit they are but they are adding a word they're saying it's a future temple no it's anoint the most holy it's a person not a place larkin said it's not a person it's a place larkin's wrong the bible's right and 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 so other places like that you've got to decide what is my fixed point of reference and then when you say well but this could be a dual fulfillment could be but you can't change what is fixed that's the point i don't think daniel 11 i I didn't have a problem. I didn't have a problem, Pastor McMurtry, with what you just said about Daniel 11, even a few years ago. But just lately, listening to the other brother talking about it, I've come to realize that it doesn't make any sense at all for Antiochus Epiphanes to be up to verse 35 of Daniel 11. And then we leapfrog from there into some 2000 year later person called the Antichrist. It's the same thing they do in Daniel 9. They try to leapfrog from either Titus or or, you know, whatever into the Antichrist. And so I, I think we've got some we've got some guys that like to leapfrog. They like to just spring out of Daniel 9 into the future. Right. Um, I, I totally agree with you that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 matches up with Revelation 13. I think there's a lot of connections there, but I just don't take it all the way back to Daniel. Okay. Right. Well, so, somebody said in the live chat, and I think this illustrates it perfectly, what I'm trying to say, you know, they mentioned animal sacrifices, they're the shadow of the shed blood of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so while we always go back to those things to like talk about what Jesus did, yeah. you know, and but the thing is we don't take something from those sacrifices that we can't find in the gospels. Right. And then make that a part of it. Correct. Right. So it, I think that's what people are trying to do with prophecy. So, you know, if, if they go to Daniel 11, yeah, they're not saying it's the exact thing, just like the lamb wasn't the exact thing. It's just it's the, just a picture of it. And so the, yeah. it's not completely inappropriate to do that as long as we understand the differences too. Well, the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. He's the he's the original lamb. Right. And uh and and so all these other things are types. Even the temple and the tabernacle were, were the shadow of the real with the true which is in heaven. Right. Uh as human beings, we we sometimes forget. The big picture is God's picture, not ours. We have to be careful, though, because we know there are shadows and types when it comes to the Old Testament sacrifices and whatnot, because the Bible tells us. Mm-hmm. We have something objective to point our finger to and say, yeah, the Bible says it. There you go. So, so I, I, I can just tell you, I there is so much in the Bible when it comes to prophecy that, that personally— I don't feel that I need to rely upon shadows and types to, to build a futuristic timeline of things that are going to happen. Um, I, I agree that there are certain things in Daniel that are yet future. Daniel chapter 7, the little horn, matches Revelation 13. But when we look at, like, for instance, the abomination of desolation, because I know a lot of people are hung up on that, saying, well, that has to be something that's fulfilled in the future. Well, there's there's limited riff references to abomination of desolation. Daniel chapter nine doesn't doesn't talk enough about uh, abomination of desolation. It says for the overspreading of abominations, he shall make it desolate. And and so that's that's talking about something I think that is that is different um, that was fulfilled. Um, it, it really, that culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple because of their continued rejection of Jesus Christ and the animal sacrifices they continued to offer. We get to Daniel chapter 11, though, Antiochus Epiphanes, and you see the same thing there. 
um, uh, abomination of desolation. We know Antiochus Epiphanes, that happened. It was a historic fact. So when I look at these passages in the Bible, I guess as a, as a pastor and as a Bible student, I look and say, well, what was the actual fulfillment of this? How, how does the Bible, how is this supposed to actually be fulfilled? Not that it can't have a dual fulfillment, and maybe it does, but what is the Bible specifically referring to? How does it make sense? And then, and then so you get to, for instance, uh, the Olivet Discourse, right? Because then Jesus is the one who said, you know, um, remember Daniel the prophet. And, and he talks about the abomination of desolation there. I personally believe that is referring to Daniel chapter 12, 11. I think that's the only one that makes sense because Daniel 9 is abominations. You say you're hung up on one little letter, the S. Yeah, that's right. It's abominations, not abomination. And by the way, the apostle Paul was hung up on one letter too in Galatians when he said it was the seed, not seeds. And so I think that's important. Uh, for, if, if we're going to be King James Bible believers, it's abominations. It's not abomination. That's not what Jesus was referring to. Antiochus Epiphanes, Daniel 11. I don't believe he was referring to that as well. Daniel 12, 11 is the only one that makes sense. And then we, we talk about the, uh, you know, how is that fulfilled? And I believe that was fulfilled in 70 AD. When it comes to the man of sin in, in 2 Thessalonians, so for instance, I do believe, yes, there is going to be a future man of sin. He is going to declare himself God in the temple of God, just as the Bible says. And then we can talk about how that's fulfilled. But those things, I believe, will take place. I also believe in Revelation 13. But let's, let's again, if people want to accuse me of being ultra-literalist, fine. Abomination of desolation isn't mentioned in Revelation 13. Abomination of desolation isn't mentioned in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. It's just not. Um, I believe those are future events that will take place. I don't think it has anything necessarily to do with the abomination of desolation as recorded in Daniel. Amen. Now, so imagine that. we got some post-tribbers here that are being too literal. <laughs> All right. We're, we're, we're being too literal. I, I'd rather be too literal than, than too fuzzy. Um, years ago, I asked Pastor Williams, I said, um, so I, I'm reading a lot about Enoch being a picture of the rapture. You heard that one? Mm -hmm. Of course you have. Um, so Pastor Williams, uh, what do you think about Enoch being a picture of the rapture? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, did Jesus ever say that? Does the Bible ever say that? He said, he said, Jesus said Noah and Lot. He said, as in the days of Noah and the days of Lot. And I just remembered that simple answer because he was just a simple Bible believer. And, and I realized, you know what? Just because somebody says Enoch is a type doesn't mean he is. I'm sure I can see some things that are familiar and some similarities there. He walked with God and God took him. But, but to make a doctrine off of something like that uh, without any verification from Scripture um, and so I love the, just the mindset. That's the mindset that I'm coming from as a student of the word is that idea that, and I love that my pastor said, well, what does the Bible say? Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah. And again, I think a good way to illustrate what I think I, I mentioned at the beginning, we're looking at the shadows. People are using the shadows as the basis instead of the 3D image in Revelation. And I guess that would be kind of like, I'm, if I'm going to introduce the gospel to somebody, if I went to the Old Testament sacrifices instead of to the New Testament, that would be a really bad idea. I've got something so much better, so much clearer in the gospels. And while, yeah, it's accurate to take those things and the types and pictures, 
it's going to be a lot harder for people to get those things nailed down. And they're probably a lot more likely to go into error if they start in the Old Testament. We should start in the New Testament. And I and I and that's what I'm saying we need to get to with Revelation is let's stay ultra focused on Revelation. And then, you know, we can look back at those other things as shadows of that. And it'll help us understand those things better. Where I think people using Daniel to understand Revelation, I think you get it backwards when you do it that way. But so another thing I want to ask you too. So, and I think you guys have kind of answered this, but I just want to, uh, you know, put it out there again. So do you think it's appropriate to say that there will be another abomination of desolation? Right. So, so personally, I do not believe there is going to be an abomination of desolation in the way that we think of perhaps in, in our modern day terms. People think that the abomination of desolation is going to be a, a rebuilt third temple somewhere and that the Antichrist figure is going to go into it and he's going to declare himself to be God. And that's going to involve somehow a Jewish covenant that he makes and he's going to break it and, and all this kind of stuff. Right. That's 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 dispensational assumption. It's that's theology that's inserted into the Bible. But it's not what the Bible actually says. Um so, so personally, no. Now, does the Bible tell us in Revelation 13 that there's going to be an image of the beast? Yes. It tells us there's going to be an image of the beast. Um, and we see a lot of cool things today when it comes to technology because this image speaks, right? Um, I think of even, um, you know, what is it? It's Facebook changed over to Meta. They're talking about the metaverse and, you know, this online community where you can kind of just plug yourself in and exist you know, when it comes to, you know, that metaverse or, or, or whatever, could there be an image that's set up in there? Yeah, there could be, there could be a lot of different things, but that's not necessarily the abomination of desolation. Um, again, I believe those are historic things that have taken place in the past already. Kind of, you know, and, and along these lines, the Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew and Mark and in Luke, it's left out of John. Now, why would why would John do that? Why wouldn't John talk about the abomination of desolation? Well, it's because think about this: John was written close to 90 A.D. or thereabouts, somewhere there. Well, after 70 A.D., there was no need for John to write about the abomination of desolation, referring specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem. Why? Because it was already passed. It was, it's something that had already taken place. So John didn't need to include it in his gospel. Um, so so that's, that's where I'm at personally. I don't believe so. I do believe there is a future Antichrist. I do believe there's this image that's going to be set up. I don't equate the two, though, saying that that's the abomination of desolation. I think that's the mistake. And again, maybe we should start being ultra literal and just going by what the Bible says. We don't find abomination of desolation in Revelation 13. I understand how people see maybe similarities, um, but similarities don't make it necessarily true. They, they do that with the pre-trib rapture saying, well, you know, Noah got in the ark and so God's going to rapture the church away, you know, just like, you know, the ark. And, and No, um, again, well, it's, it's a shadow. No, that's an assumption is what it is. You're not basing, a, uh, basing that on anything concrete in the Bible. Yes, and it's an example, and you're drawing a conclusion off that example, but you don't have anywhere to point in Scripture that actually says that's what's going to happen. That's the issue that I find here. Yeah, because a lot, a lot of people have brought up, too, that when it comes to the seven-year you know, peace treaty, covenant, 
that the Antichrist, because he's an imitator, that he, you know, he'll imitate the one that Jesus did. But again, we don't have any scripture on that because Daniel 9's not talking about that. I know that. So if there's yeah, come- no other scripture, then we can't dogmatically say that. Yeah, it's a mate. When it comes to the subject of prophecy, the imaginations just start to take over. And and uh, I'm thinking of the old Left Behind series, or not even Left Behind, but the old Thief in the Night series back in the 70s. I mean, it's laughable to watch it now because they didn't even understand the computer technology that we understand today, you know, with the ink stamp on the hand and all that silly stuff. But the point is, is that your imaginations and then these charts and diagrams, and you're getting extra biblical here. And I, I want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 11. It says, now all these things happen unto them. Boy, my glasses are giving me problems. Now all these things happen unto them for examples or in samples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. I think it's perfectly fine to use Old Testament passages and the principles they teach as we go forward into tribulation. For instance, you want to read Daniel and find out how to behave when you are surrounded by worldly and wicked people? Daniel's a great book to read. Uh, Standing when you're going to get thrown in the fiery furnace, lion's den, whatever it might be. Hey, I tell you what, there's some great principles that you can get out of Daniel, but you got to be careful that you're not trying to make something dual fulfillment that isn't there. So the Old Testament is given to us for in samples, and it's given to us for admonition to stand strong like these Old Testament saints did. They were given to us for examples. They were given to us to follow. And there's nothing wrong with correlating some of that and saying, I will not. Like Daniel said, I'll not defile myself with the king's meat, with the wine which you drank. I mean, there's people right now that might decide that concerning the, the vac shop or concerning something else. But there's going to come a day when people are going to have to take a stand and decide that their bodies are, are, are God's temple their body belongs to the Lord and they can take the principles they see in the old Testament and say, we're not going to defile ourselves." And I think that's where you get the mark and the beheading and all that sort of thing. And that's where you got to, that's why the old Testament is there. So to encourage us that, that either God can do a miracle like he did for the three Hebrew children or worse off, we're going to go to heaven, but either way, it's okay. I mean, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us these all died in faith and some of them were sawn asunder. Some of them died terrible deaths. We like to read the first part of Hebrew chapter 11, but those last parts, pretty, pretty rough stuff in there. But you know what? They went through it and we might have to go through it too. And it's okay because the God told us and gave us his word. And so there are principles in the Old Testament we can take with us, but we got to be careful that we're not trying to match something into the future from the Old Testament. You know, another example of that is, um, is and pre-tribbers do this all the time. They'll call, they'll call Daniel's 70th week, um, the time of Jacob's trouble, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And they'll get that from Jeremiah 30, verse 7. Well, is, is that future? If you read Jeremiah 30 in its context, it is talking about the destruction of Babylon, mm-hmm. what Dan- the aftermath of what Daniel is experiencing. Jacob's trouble is something that happened in the past, but people co-opt that and they claim dual fulfillment based on nothing other than their assumption and their theology and say, well, Jacob's trouble is in the future. That's what that final week is all about. No, you're just taking a verse out of context is what you're doing. Um, and, and, and I hate to be that you know coy and blunt about it, but that's essentially what's happening. Right. Yeah. So I, I've got a couple more questions I want to get to, but I want to make sure we covered everything from some of the emails and things I got and some of this stuff we might've already covered, but uh, I wanted to read this one email just to make sure we kind of cover everything. But uh, the question is how do Matthew 24, Mark 13 and Luke 21 tie into Daniel 9, 26 and 27? Do you still see 
a divided seven-year tribulation slash wrath period in our future, with the rapture being somewhere in the middle. And it says, I'm aware that the beginning of these chapters in the Gospels is obviously written for the ethnic Jewish believers, i.e. fleeing to the mountains, etc. However, is it also obvious that the end of these chapters, like Matthew 24, 29 through 31, describe events that happen to all believers? And then also Revelation 13 sure alludes to another abomination of desolation. And so, well, I think we've covered some, uh, I think we've covered some of this stuff. I guess what I want to get from this is, um, do you believe that the Olivet Discourse is about the same thing that we're reading in Daniel 9? And then do you believe in seven more years or just another three and a half years? Uh, what What is your thoughts on that without going into full Olivet Discourse? Because that'd probably be another long Thing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I believe that Jesus is expanding on Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. I believe this is about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. The context tells us that um, they were looking, his disciples were looking at all the, the goodly stones and the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said, you know, this stuff is all going to come down. You know, not one stone is going to be left upon another. And so they asked him, um, this is what we find in all three, Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. They asked him, when shall these things be? Now, Mark, or excuse me, Matthew 24 adds a little bit more, and it says, when what shall be the sign of thy coming and at the end of the world? And so I believe the Olivet Discourse is discussing two things. I believe that the Olivet Discourse is discussing uh, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. That's obviously what the question pertained to. I think in the, in the, uh, I don't think it's far-fetched to say this, that in the disciples' minds, the end of the temple or the destruction of the temple was equivalent with the end of the world. Um, and, and, and so Jesus is answering what it's going to be like. And so I think, I think both elements are there. I think the destruction of 70 AD is there. And I also think, also referring to the future, I am not, I am not a full preterist. I don't believe that Jesus returns in 70 AD. I don't believe that the resurrection occurred. I'm not obviously in a glorified body. I'm a crippled guy in a wheelchair. Um, you know, that's that's yet future. That's one of the great hopes that I have uh, for when Jesus returns. So that is obviously in the future. And so I think Jesus was discussing both. I do not believe that there is a seven-year tribulation period that's spoken of here. The only place, only place, and I emphasize that, that we get a seven-year tribulation period is a misinterpretation of Daniel chapter 9. Nowhere else is it described in the Word of God. I also think there's elements that carry us all the way on to the, into the future. Do you think Revelation 12 gives us seven years? Uh, I think Revelation 12, that's interesting. Revelation 12, I think, is a recap of history um, to where we are now. Um, I think a lot of that has been fulfilled. When you see the devil and his angels being cast out of heaven, and, and it talks about that. Let me just get back over there to, to Revelation. Uh, sorry, I wasn't prepared for this one. Yeah, I uh, just I just thought of it because... It does appear that there's, you know, there's two mentions of three and a half years. So right, right. Are those the I same think, same three and a half, or are those a total of seven? I, I certainly think it's being re, uh, the the passage is referring initially to Israel, mm -hmm. right? Because you have this you have this woman who's travailing in birth. It's Israel. The child is obviously Christ. We read about that. He's caught up to the throne of God 
The woman fled into the wilderness where she had the place prepared of God that she should be fed there a thousand three hundred three hundred uh, two hundred and three square days. I believe that is referring to what happened back there in 70 AD, because then we get verses seven and following where the devil's cast out of heaven and all that. Some people think that that's future. But verse 10 tells us saying, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now is come salvation um, and, uh, and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before God day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives unto death. That's happening even now. And you go to verse 17, the last, the last verse of that, it says, And the dragon was wroth with the woman, the woman is Israel, and went to make war with the remnant of her seed, which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Who has the testimony of Jesus Christ? Believers do. And so who is, who is Satan warring against even right now? He is warring against believers. How do we overcome? We love not our lives unto death. Uh, as it says there back in verse 11, and we overcome by the blood of the lamb, by the word of our testimony and loving not our lives unto death. So I think that three and a half years is something that happened in the past. I, I think that's a recap. John is recapping what has happened um, in Revelation 12 for the most part. I believe if we want to put you know pinpoint where are we in history, we're in verse 17 of, of Revelation 12. Okay. Yeah, uh, similar, similar, I would say similar dittos to most of that. Um, and to plug my book, uh, chapter four talks about Matthew 24 um, and, and, and that and, and, and the Olivet Discord. Um, I, as I was saying about Daniel 9 being a positive, I think that there's things are getting pretty heavy in Revelation. So you get to chapter 12 and it's almost like we're doing a recap, as he said, and you're just going back and reviewing the history of everything. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I concur with most of what Pastor Clem just said. And uh, I have as I, you know, I've gotten a couple books written, but I also have a complete series of sermons that are online on Revelation, chapter by chapter. Uh, one thing to remember um, is that the the book of Revelation was written on a scroll uh, on the front side and the back side, and I think chapter twelve is on the back side uh, as the kind of the backstory or just kind of uh, reminding ourselves or kind of recapping, so to speak, uh, concerning what's going on on the front side. This brings us to, you know, when you when you see that 1260 days and, and 42 months and a time, time and half a times, we see that we see that a lot. Um, and Revelation does that a lot with the Old Testament. In fact, Revelation is the most heavily quoted book from the Old Testament. It, 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 it pulls images and all sorts of things. You can go back and look at Zechariah and, and some of the things when the, with the seals, all that kind of stuff. The point, the point being this, I do think that John is borrowing from, um, from language in, in Daniel. Um, I do believe, like I said in Revelation 12, that that is referring to what happened there in 70 A.D., um, but I also believe that Revelation, a lot of this is symbolic, um, and, and so it could, carry, it could carry some other meaning to that. And so I guess I'm not you know, too dogmatic. Um, I lean toward there, toward there is going to be a future literal three and a half years that are going to be tremendously hard for this earth. Um, that, that's where I come down. I think that, that John is trying to, 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 to tell us that in Scripture. Um, but then again, there's there's other there's other like-minded brethren who believe that that three and a half years is symbolic. 
um, of, of everything that's going on up until now. I don't hold that view. I, I, I take a more literal view, but, um, but I, I understand how people get to that. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we're running out of time. I wanted to keep this under two hours, but man, I mean, yeah, my mind's just totally blown tonight. You know, a lot of really interesting stuff, but, um, I guess uh, if you have some quick answers to some of these, so in uh, the live chat was just asked too. What do you guys think is next in prophecy? What are what are you, what are you waiting for? So um, again, my Revelation series, we go through this, and and disclaimer, I'm not inspired, okay, and I'm I might have to change some things, and 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 if I can see it from the Word, I will. Uh, but my Revelation series, we go through it, and um, I I really believe we're in the fifth seal. Uh, and um, in Revelation chapter 6, we're in the fifth seal. I believe the sixth seal is coming. I believe there's seals. I believe then there's trumpets, and I believe then there's vials, and they follow each other. I believe the seals are very slow compared to everything else. Uh, for the last 2,000 years, or almost 2,000 years, I believe we are in tribulation. In this world, you will have tribulation. I know everybody talks about the great tribulation, or you know, the tribulation with a capital T as if it's some kind of a future period. But I'm just going to take the Bible at face value. It says great tribulation. And like Scott said a minute ago, I think there probably is going to be three and a half years of some great tribulation coming, but it's not a period like we're taught. Um, there's a difference between saying the great depression and saying great depression. The great depression is a historical period of time, but great depression happens all the time to different people. And, and if, you'll just, if you'll just learn to read the Bible for what it says, you know, there's going to be great tribulation, not the great tribulation. Um, it's Schofield and others that got us to think that way. Uh, so I just believe that we're in tribulation, that tribulation is, as he alluded to already, as he said earlier, we're, we're, we've been in tribulation. And it might not be great for us in America, uh, as it has been for some others, but it is tribulation. And sometimes it's greater than others, depending on where you are. Uh, but then... At the end of the seals, and now someone will say, well, well, Revelation chapter 6 says, at the end of chapter 6, talks about the wrath. No, man talks about the wrath, but heaven does not declare the wrath until chapter 11. And so it isn't until chapter 11 that heaven declares that the wrath of God is come. And so I don't believe that wrath starts in Revelation 6. And apparently Horatio Spafford didn't believe it either, because he said, uh, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump will sound. And so uh, we sing that in our churches all the time. It is well with my soul. And, and so I think the sixth seal is coming next. That's when you get to the sun, moon, darken, uh, and, and uh, stars falling. And that matches with Matthew chapter 24, 29, and on from there. And so after the sixth seal, boom, then you've got the seventh seal. When the seventh seal is open, you've got trumpets ticking off. I don't know. I don't know exactly what the time frame will be. Maybe it's the three and a half years. But the trumpets are going to tick off. You get to that seventh trumpet, that's it. That's when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our Lord. And that's when the wrath is come. And heaven declares it to be so. So that matches up perfectly with the last trump. The last trump is the seventh trump. There is no later trump in the Bible than the seventh trump in Revelation. I know that might cause some people to be a little upset that I said that. Uh, but I'm just a simple Bible believer. And he said the last trump. And so I'm just going to take it for what it says. And the seven trumps, the last trump. And after the trump, then the wrath. We're not appointed to wrath, but we will have tribulation. So through the seals, through the trumpets, there's going to be tribulation. That seventh trumpet's going to sound, and boom, I'm out of here as a believer if I'm still here. 
and then the wrath of God's poured out on the unbeliever. All right. Well, if I may just take a moment to, for the audience, just gasp. <gasps> I can't believe you just said that. And and, and listen, folks. I, you know, so Pastor Tommy. You know, what 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 do you think about that? I, I'm not. I'm not totally sold on that theory yet, but you know, I'm willing to listen. I, I, you know, I'm willing to listen and I see where he's coming from and I, I'm, I'm not there yet. There's things I've got to, you know, figure out, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't hate pastor first because of that. Explain all this in this kind of forum, but if you yeah. want to go listen right. to the whole, you want to go listen to the whole revelation series, have at it. I'm not threatened if y'all want to go listen to this Revelation series, and I, I, I'm very interested. So, you know, Pastor Sklim, Clem, do you subscribe to this heresy? Yeah, so, I'm sure some will. <laughs> <laughs> so by, by, by and large, I, I agree with a lot of things that Matt has said. I'm going to throw another thing up here. You know, the, the hardest thing for people to, to, um, to disconnect themselves from is a seven-year timeline. We've all been told that the end times is a seven-year timeline. If you take that away, because... Again, that that rests solely upon a misinterpretation of Daniel chapter nine. Then what do you have? I think you have something like this. We we have been in tribulation for the last two thousand years. Jesus came and he set up the kingdom of God. He it hasn't been uh, uh, he, he hasn't uh, consummated. I guess maybe is the word that we, we might use. We're still living in the days of this fourth beast system that is persecuting the saints of God. And at some point, Jesus is going to come. I think this gives more credence to what jesus said when jesus talked about no man will know the day or the hour of his coming we just don't know when that is it's sometime in the future in the meantime we will suffer tribulation we have been in tribulation there is no seven year tribulation period we have been in tribulation since the days jesus told us we were in tribulation and so that's a that's a long time that's a long time for the church to be waiting um i believe if we're to look for anything, um, you know, yes, no man knows the day or the hour. Second Thessalonians chapter two tells us in particular, um, he says, now we beseech you by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and by our gathering together unto him. So Christ's coming in our gathering, i.e. the rapture, resurrection. Um, he says that you be uh, that you be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit or word or by letter from us that the day of christ is at hand let no man deceive you by any means that day shall not come except there come a falling away first and the man of sin be revealed the son of perdition so that tells me very clearly that christ's coming in our gathering i.e the day of christ is not going to come until there is a falling away we all recognize that generally as apostasy and the man of sin is revealed so the question that i have for myself is and again, I, I use that example of the Jews all thought that Jesus was going to fill the scriptures a certain way, and he didn't, according to them. They were all wrong. The whole world essentially was wrong. Um, and so could that be the same way with the second coming of Christ? Could it, could it in fact, be that the man of sin has been revealed? Um, and maybe we just don't recognize that. Um, I mentioned this last time that, um, you know, that the reformers thought that the Pope was the, quote, Antichrist. Maybe that'll be that way. Maybe Jesus Christ will come back tomorrow and nobody will expect it, just as the Bible actually says. 
and Jesus then will teach us going on in eternity future how he has fulfilled the scriptures and how such and such was the Antichrist. But I do think that you have to have these two things first. Whether we understand or see their fulfillment or not, there has to be a man of sin revealed and there has to be this apostasy. I think it's arguable that we're living in the days of that apostasy right now um, and maybe have been for a while. I think, you know, part of the preacher rapture and dispensationalism, I think people obviously apostasy for Christians doesn't mean that we lose our salvation. We can't. Uh, once saved, always saved. I'm a firm believer in that. Um, but we do know that, you know, well-meaning people can fall away from the truth. Think of think about, I don't think that our preacher brethren out there are any less saved. I believe they're saved. I believe they're wrong. I believe they're confused. I believe there's a falling away from the, from the truth of God's word. And so I think, I think some of those things are perhaps maybe what the, the Bible is talking about when it comes to apostasy. Um, you know, that, that's, that's kind of how I see it. I don't, I, I mean, Matt would go deeper into the seals and all that kind of stuff. I generally agree. I think we're probably living in the time about the fifth seal. Um, Jesus is going to come back in an unexpected time. Um, and we need to be watching. And day of Christ is something that, uh, I point out in the book, chapter one concerning day of Christ versus day of the Lord. It's amazing how many pre-trib quote unquote KJV only guys, want it to say day of the Lord instead of day of Christ. Now, granted, it's the same person, Jesus, and it could very well be the same day, but it does not mean the same thing, and they know it, and that's why they want it to say day of the Lord instead of day of Christ. And since since we're talking literal, um, it's not just in the King James. It's in the Texas Receptus. It says day of Christos. It says Christos in the TR, but the Westcott Hort says cure you for Lord. And, uh, and not only that, but the Catholic edition, says Lord, day of Lord. And the Jehovah's Witness Bible, of course, says day of Jehovah. And so these guys that wanted to say day of Lord instead of day of Christ, they're not even, they're hypocrites when it, when they call themselves King James only. And I list the names of these guys in my book, if anyone uh, cares to look at that. But day of Christ is a positive. It's it's Messiah, right? That's, that's what we're talking about in Daniel chapter 9, Christ, Messiah. He's the Messiah. That's who we're looking for. Only the believers, only the Savior looking for the Messiah. And, uh, and for the rest of the world that's unsaved, he's going to be Lord and judge. And uh, that's why they got to change that, because it's saying there in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 that the man of sin will be revealed. There'll be an apostasy, and the man of sin will be revealed. And they've, they've, got, to, they've got to change that in the text in order for their, their pre-trib to fit. And that's why um, the title of the book, KJV versus uh, pre-trib rapture. Um, and then, you know, Scott's been talking about how that the whole world was fooled. The whole world couldn't believe. Well, you know what? Not quite the whole world. There were some wise men that showed up right on time. Well, I mean, they had to travel, so they were a little late. But there were some wise men. I do not think for one minute that those wise men looked up in the sky, saw a shining star, and said, boom, there's got to be some baby born under that star. I don't think by itself they thought that. I think they had Daniel, and I think they read Daniel. I mean, Daniel was the wisest of the wise men and chief of the magicians or the magi. And I think the wise men read the scriptures and then the confirmation and the star showed them and told them, man, we got to go find him. And, and so the people, the people of Daniel, the Jews, they didn't even care. They didn't even know. They had to go dust off Micah 5.2 and find out that, yeah, it's Bethlehem. But the wise men probably didn't have Micah 5.2, but they had yeah. Daniel. And so the wise men, see, if you're wise, you'll read the scriptures and let the scriptures do the talking. Yeah, I just I, I'm less dogmatic when it comes to how the you know, how are these 
how are these end times events going to be fulfilled? I don't know necessarily. All I know is Jesus is coming back. And we do have these things about the Antichrist and the falling away. Yeah, I, I saw this today. I thought this was interesting. Um, you've got the Pope here. He's sitting on a quote-unquote throne um, in between two cherubim. Um, I, that's look, that that that's pretty blatant to me. Uh, that's pretty Antichrist. Is he the Antichrist? I don't know. Um, but that is Antichrist. Um, so anyway, it's it's one of those things. I I just there are many antichrists. Exactly. 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 Um, yeah. I, so as far as the fulfillment of these things, I, I don't know. I just again, I, I keep my eyes looking for Jesus. Um, also at world events and some of the things that are going on, because obviously there there's a lot of things going on. Jesus said that his coming would take the world by surprise. They'll be eating and, and drinking and giving in marriage. It'll be business as usual for the world. Um, and I think we just, we just have to be careful. That's where, again, a misunderstanding of these things keeps us. We say, well, there's got to be a seven-year tribulation. We're nowhere close. Nowhere close. We don't have to worry about all that. I think that's the mistake. Yeah. Um, we, we ha- and again, I, you know, I, I, I am not in, you know, I don't believe in the imminent return in as much as the man of sin and the apostasy have to come first. But but I I guess for me, it's I, I just I have to ask myself, are those things happening? And am I just dense enough and not seeing it? And I hope that I'm I'm seeing things well enough and watching for my Lord because he's going to come as a thief. Yeah. So basically, you think imminency is possible. That might score you some points of the pre trivers <laughs> it, 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 it might. Um, I think, I, I, like I said, um, I, I believe that those two things have to happen first. It's just a matter of, are those things, you know, have they been fulfilled? Are we recognizing their fulfillment? Um, and maybe it will be more blatant. Um, maybe it will be more in your face. Maybe there will be this this person who, um, some world leader, and 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 we we all recognize that as being the antichrist. But again. Going back to this discussion, how are you going to recognize that he's the Antichrist? What are you looking for? Are you looking for him to make a seven-year peace treaty with the Jews, right? What is going to flag you what is, or, or, or flag you off to, to know that the man that you think is the Antichrist is the Antichrist? Because if you're waiting for a seven-year tribulation period, if you're waiting for a covenant, if you're waiting for the rebuilding of a temple, I don't think any of those things are going to happen. I think you're looking for something that's never going to happen. Hence, you could be deceived. That's where I think the danger comes in. So you think it's possible to that we would miss the mark of the beast, though? The, the mark of the beast, again, what is the mark of, in beast, uh, mark of the beast entail? It's, it's worship. It's, it's more than anything, it's worship and not being able to buy and sell. It's pretty interesting, some of the things that are happening today with the with I mean, you're talking about the beast being government and the mark, the government saying we want your worship. We demand your worship in order to buy or sell. That's happening today, whether we realize it or not, with all this covid mess, uh, with these jabs that they're wanting us to get. What is what is government saying? Worship us. Do what you're told or you can't engage in commerce. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I wouldn't go as far as to say that is the mark of the beast. I think some precursors are certainly there. But again, I'm not that smart. Um, and the Lord, the Lord may fulfill things in ways that I can't envision. Um, and if he comes back tomorrow, um, you know, he's going to have to explain to me then what all this stuff meant. Um, and he will. And he will be perfectly correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, 
we're willing to say we think we're at the fifth seal or we think, but we are also willing to admit, you know, as we're not smart enough to know everything. Uh, and he's going to, and when, when he comes, when the last trumpet sounds, I mean, you, you can point your finger and say, boy, were you stupid? I don't care. At that point, I'm looking ahead to other things. If I got to apologize, I will. But I, I don't think anybody has it all figured out. Um, but I, I do explain how I think it and understand it. And uh, I do think the man of sin will be revealed. And, uh, and then uh, the apostasy is happening. And I do, I, I know I'm going to probably get hammered for this. I do think pre-trib is part of the apostasy. Uh, I think it's setting people up for a false hope of getting zapped out of here like beam me up, Scotty. And I also think it's, like you said, it's setting people up to say, no, this can't possibly be the Antichrist because he doesn't come on until after we're gone. And so I think the pre-trib doctrine is part of it. And I think getting away from scripture and into imaginary charts is part of it. And all that, that goes along with that, I think that's part of what's happening. But eventually, I do think there is a man of sin that will be revealed. And I do think there will be Bible believers that will see him and say he is him. That is him. Um, and I don't know how many of us will be left at that point. I don't know. Uh, but I do believe what the Bible says, that he will be revealed before the day of Christ comes. Amen. Well, hey, we could go on for hours more on this. I think we need to shut it down. But, folks, what you're seeing here tonight, you know, you're, is three pastors. We're not in 100% agreement. But you know what we're doing? We're having a conversation and we're learning. Uh, and I have been greatly challenged um, by tonight's discussion. And we need to have conversations like this. We don't need to just uh, live in an echo chamber. Uh, I don't think that's necessary. We shouldn't be afraid of a challenge. And I, I think there's a lot of things, these things we've been talking about, people need to talk about them. I think there's a lot more to be learned in this. I think dispensationalism has just built walls in our study that has hindered so much growth. And we got to break those things down. And the more of that, the more, dis, the farther away I get from dispensationalism, the more the Bible's just opened up to me so i really appreciate you guys um coming on here doing this being willing to take the criticism uh for discussing this subject discussing the subject with me uh i, I really appreciate because i really enjoy it it helps me a lot but you guys have any final words before we sign out no you no know, I, I i just i appreciate um i appreciate the venue being able to share these things and again the the spirit of all this um we're talking about future prophetic events that haven't occurred yet. Um, I guarantee that, that, you know, I'm wrong somewhere. Um, I think I'm right when it comes to Daniel's 70th week being messianic and not eschatological. Um, but I, I think we need to have some, some grace with one another. The one thing that I am absolutely certain of more than anything else is that Jesus is coming again and there's going to be a, a literal, physical, bodily resurrection that awaits me and other believers. I'm, I'm dogmatic about, about that, but I think, I think we can have some cordial discussions. So I appreciate this, uh, brother Tommy, appreciate you, uh, uh setting this up and, and, um, and, and brother Matt, uh, being able to, to share his wisdom and, and things about his book. And I would also just encourage people to go and get that book. Um, uh, I wrote the forward for the book. I, I had the opportunity, the privilege to, to read it early and uh, to give some feedback 
And um, if you are a serious, if you, if you call yourself KJV only, you need to read that book. It is going to challenge you. It'll test the metal of your conviction. And, um, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to open your eyes to some things. So please, um, I'd encourage you to, to, to get a hold of that and, um, and, and let yourself be challenged a little bit. And I just, I just want to say that 100 years ago, they didn't have the division over eschatology like we're having it now. Um, there, there were even amillennialists uh, or postmillennialists that were still considered fundamentalists. Um, Philip Morrow is in the fundamentals. Uh, he's, he's in there three different chapters. The guy eventually was not premillennial by the end of his life, but he was a good man who <clears throat> stood for the King James against the revised version. Um, he, was, he, he was a source, I think, that people are missing because they've never heard of him uh, today. Uh, because there's such a predominance in the certain circles that we call independent Baptist uh, of, of, uh, of a dispensational mindset. And I just hope, my real hope is not that everybody agrees with me. That'd scare me to death. My real hope is that everybody comes to the realization that we need to be more tolerant when it comes to eschatology. And we need to get back to Bible. And what does the Bible say? And when I say tolerant, I don't mean to be too tolerant, but what does the Bible say? And if that man if that brother can show me from the King James Bible why he believes it, let's just stop right there and appreciate that and, and learn from one another. And that's what this brother that called us last week wants to do. He wants to come out and just talk the Bible. And he's hoping to learn some things. And, and I think he might be hoping to teach us some things. But either way, that's what it's all about. And I already consider him a friend, even though I've never met him because of his spirit, his attitude. And I would just love it if we had some Bible colleges that would actually allow this kind of conversation and dialogue and debate on the Bible issue, uh, instead of just systematic theology colleges, you know, but rather just, let's just talk Bible and explain why this brother's coming at it from this point of view, from the King James, and why this brother says it this way, and let people decide for themselves, what does the Bible say? So that's really my hope, is that we'll stop this, this silliness and division over uh, some of these things. I do believe that pre-trib is wrong, and I do believe pre-trib is going to lead into some apostasy, but that doesn't mean I'm against the guys who currently believe it just because that's what they've been taught, because that's what you guys used to be. And, yeah, amen. And, you know, I am, I'm, I'm really hoping I'm going to be able to make it out there uh, for that meetup because um, I'm telling you, people would love to be a fly on the wall at that thing because it is. I think it's going to be very interesting but I do think it's important that how we're planning on doing it because um, you got to be able to get pride off the table, and it, and the, and here's why this this pastor's allowed to do it. And I, I've talked to this pastor before. It's because you know he's he's a he's a good man, he's a sincere man, and he has I believe he has a genuine desire for truth as we all do. And obviously we have disagreements on that, but you know people who are confident. People who really are searching for truth, they're not afraid to be challenged. And, you know, for me, and maybe this is one of his motivations for wanting to do this. Um, if I want to challenge somebody, if I want to debunk something, I want to find out where they're coming from so I know how to change their mind. Exactly. And you can't do that without sitting down and talking to them. And finding out exactly where they're coming from. So yep. I think that's why he's not afraid to do this because I think he, and so the thing is you've got a lot of people out there and there's going to be a lot of people that are going to watch this that aren't going to like it, that aren't going to have the guts or the backbone to talk to any of us. 
but they'll tell everybody what they think about, you know, you know, us when they're in their echo chamber. And, yeah. um, and so it, it comes down a lot of times to the character of the individual. And I, and I yeah, I've talked to him before and I just yeah. sincerely believe he's just a good man. And so I think we're going to be capable of doing something like this. That's probably yeah. going to be a, definitely a very rare thing. And Tommy, I've never met the man. I've just talked to him on the phone, but I'm going to tell you right now, I consider him to be my friend and to actually care about me more than some of these guys who supposedly were my friend, but then talk all kinds of stuff behind my back uh, about my eschatology, but won't take the time to come out and talk to me face to face like this guy will. And so I just appreciate that. You got to respect that. And I wish we could get back to that where we could just talk the Bible and learn where we're coming from. I think it opened our mind, our eyes to a lot of stuff. I agree. I agree. So folks, that's what this is all about. This is about, you know, civil discussions this is about being challenged, talking, uh, said, I'm not talking about talking with heretics. You know, we're, we're talking with brothers in Christ, people who are right in the gospel, uh, and considering these things and being challenged. And I think it's great. We're sharpening each other. And so I hope you've all benefited from this. I hope it's been a blessing and a help to you. And I'm sure We'll do it again. Hopefully we'll get the, uh, the other pastor to join us in one of these because I know he'll have a ton to contri- uh, contribute. But go uh, check out the, those links uh, for their channels. Uh, watch these guys' messages. If you're new to this, I left links to several videos that I've done related to this topic and to this subject. Uh, those videos are my thoughts, not necessarily these guys. They have, uh, so we, we all have our areas where we're a little different, but um, I challenge you to go watch these. And I hope they will be a help and a blessing. Hope you'll be challenged. And if anything, I just hope we'll just get everyone reading their Bible more. So thank you again for watching. Like, share this video, uh, get the word out on it. And we will see you all next time.